Welcome from all of us to all of you. If you want to know how glad we are to have you with us, just you listen. Hi, and welcome to the Crisis on Infinite Midlives podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. It's episode 125. Is that a milestone? Does that count as a milestone? Sure, why not? Because uh, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> I say it's a, I have decided and declared it is a milestone. It looks like a nice round number. Yes. We're, uh, it's divisible uh, by five. Yeah, what are we, a quarter of the way to 500? Sure. I can't face the idea of having done this 500 <laughs> times. Of course you can. I, I, For our loyal and awesome fan base. And uh, which, which is very nice to have. Uh, all I know is I've been sitting in this goddamn office chair for five hours cutting audio of Frank Miller, and I wish I were dead. <laughs> Frank Miller wishes he was dead, so there's that. I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> the case, but I have heard more of Frank Miller's voice since noon today that I don't ever need to hear Frank again. He's in many way, in many ways, a fascinating fellow to listen to. Uh, in many ways, he has a great deal of inf- insight about comics in the '80s, which is still my favorite period of comics history that I've lived through. Of course, when you're 15 years old, you're enthusiastic about everything. <laughs> Look, is that a boob? It's side boob! Yay! <laughs> it's the best day ever. Did they draw side boob in the 80s? I thought everything was like you know, even if you saw boobs, it was like covered in spandex. In fact, we got the George Perez first volume of Wonder Woman. And there's side boob. There's side boob on the back of the wraparound <laughs> cover of Wonder Woman number one from I believe 1987. Uh, is it Wonder Woman side boob? No, it's Hippolytus. Hippolytus side boob. Yeah. Like MILF side boob. Well, yeah. Ex- <laughs> except she, she wasn't a mother yet. <laughs> Elf? Uh-huh. Amazon I'd like to fuck? You can't Bamf. even say that. Bamf? Yeah, it's, it's badass motherfucker on the internet. What the fuck is going on with the internet? <laughs> Bamf side boob. Uh, all right. I'll go with that. <laughs> of course. It's- Alternately, it's what happens when... Um, Nightcrawler like pops in and out of like the ladies' room. Bam! Side boob. Bam! Well, when you I'm pop... twelve, I am I am emotionally twelve. When you pop in and out of a bathroom, the smell of sulfur is not. <laughs> it probably would help in certain cases. And yeah, the bam thing—that's uh, a great idea. Except we see the side boob at boob after Hippolyta has been enslaved by Heracles. Oh well. So the badass motherfucker. Not right at that moment. She's, she's biding her time. Then again, about eight panels later, she rises up, frees the Amazons, and just goes a killing. Bamf. So, all right, we'll go with Bamf. <laughs> Bamf side boob. We that still that can't be a title of the show. We'll be we'll be, we'll be off <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> iTunes isn't happy we're there to begin with. We're yeah. just sort of, we're like that house on the corner that ain't been painted for a while, and you hear the sound of punk rock coming out of the back every now and again at like one o'clock in the morning. We're we're not the good neighbors of iTunes, so let's not give them an excuse, for God's sake. All right. Sure. Whatever you say, sir. <laughs> Please don't call me sir. <laughs> That's just... Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. I just I just finished reading... Uh, we probably aren't going to discuss this, but I just finished reading Civil War uh, Wolverine with uh, Old Man Logan, and they have apparently a little clone now of, of all the Wolverines named Gabby. Who's yeah, a there child. Were, there are actually a bunch of clones, and that... she she meets a uh, Captain America for the first time, and all she can do is salute, and she she's just sort of frozen there, and doesn't know when to stop saluting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Tom Taylor's been doing pretty well on that book. It was I, adorable. I, yeah, I, I wasn't sure I'd feel about you know a brand, X23 as Logan, but he's been doing a pretty good job with yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I I enjoyed the book, although uh, spoiler, uh, 
Old Man Logan kills Gabby seemingly at the end of the book. She is kind of irritating. <laughs> I'm okay with it. So it was sort of a, a, it, what I've been finding with the, the Civil War books as I've been reading through them. It, it's I'm, I'll read it to get to the end of it because I'm curious, but the whole thing just feels like a King Hell bummer of a story, and I'm, it, it doesn't make me feel good. Well, and it's also I'm also at a point where I'm like, yep, I get it. I'm not even like questioning ideas or like having arguments with myself about like deeply held philosophical issues. I'm like, yep, okay. <laughs> well, you and I were talking about this ahead of time. It's when all the good guys are fighting each other. Yeah, that's not a happy story. It's a happy story in like the first three pages of every Marvel team up ever. Yeah, where Spider Man meets the the the, the new <laughs> the new hero and they throw a couple punches and go, whoa, wait a minute, no, there's a. Uh, the, the Equinox or some other third-rate villain that somebody right. came up with for this single issue that nobody ever heard of again. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's one thing for that. When it's months and months and months and you've killed a founding Avenger as kind of a plot device, although not quite as bad a plot device as, as killing Black Goliath in the first Civil War. Yeah. But we'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about We're the, gonna the talk Fallen about, later yeah. on. <laughs> it's a problem. It's not a fun event. No. <laughs> Everybody's pissed and hates each other. And yeah, there, there are, there's very little in the way of, of any kind of bright spots in any of these stories. It, usually, it's been my experience, successful stories, there's, if you're going to have this sort of drawn out, just darkness, you want to have at least one moment or two of levity to at least punch things up and, and, take people out of that moment so as to then hit them harder with more darkness later. Oh, absolutely. But, so, you know, but, even Macbeth had the Porter scene, which was all dick jokes. But, <laughs> but please don't bring Shakespeare into this. I've asked you and I've asked you and I've asked you. But I have yet to see dick jokes, thinly veiled or otherwise, anywhere in Civil War. So <laughs> Yeah. It's, would it kill you, Marvel? <laughs> all the humor from it, ironically, comes from Amadeus Cho, who is just being telegraphed as going to be the one who's going to kill a whole bunch of more superheroes yeah. at the end of it. Although, Although in the latest, and you haven't read it yet, uh, Marvel Civil War Gods of War issue, uh, where Hercules is on a berserker killing rampage because of millennial gods. It's always the fucking millennials. It's always the millennials. <laughs> Spider-Man does show up to give him um, shit about his man, man bun. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> For half a second. For I half thought, a second. <laughs> I thought you were going to say mangina. Which no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it, uh, look... Uh, I don't want to get, we're getting, we're getting derailed on civil war, but the problem is <laughs> what Bendis has done here is basically doomed to only go in a certain direction because if Ulysses can in fact see the future, that means that if that future is immutable, that means there is no free will in the Marvel universe. So why would, why would having Peter Parker say with great power comes great responsibility if everything he does is predestined? Captain Marvel is destined to be wrong. Yeah. That's I, I can't yeah. see it any other way. And now we're seven and a half minutes into the show that's supposed to be about Frank Miller, and we've got completely off the rails. I've had a lot of caffeine today, and now I'm pouring alcohol on top of it. Buckle in, kids. It's going to be an episode. All right. My last thought on this is the the last group of people who held very strongly to the idea of predestination were the Puritans, and at least they were in it for the money. If you were doing well, God would show you you were doing well because you made the monies. That oh. does that. They don't even have this happening for them here. <laughs> isn't that the uh, keep the world safer? Pff, pay me. Isn't that the the wealth uh, <laughs> the wealth gospel that the, <laughs> that all those uh, preachers get in trouble with on the TV? I I don't really know a lot about these sorts of things. I just remember from my my high school U.S. history class 
it was predestination and, and you were doing it right. Um, and God would show you that you were doing it right because money's. Well, clearly we're fucking wrong. <laughs> we're dead wrong. We don't have any hope. <laughs> All right. Hey, fair enough. If that's how it is, sorry, God, do the best I can. <laughs> Oh, uh, all right. Should we talk about Frank Miller? That really yes. is. That's sort of the money shot that we walked away with from Boston Comic Con. Speaking of enduring leg- legacies. Yes. So Boston Comic Con was last week. We were lucky enough to get into the Frank Miller panel. Uh, originally, we didn't think we were going to. Originally, he and he still had two panels, but they were go- both going to be for people who bought one of the uh, three or four Frank Miller VIP packages, which uh, went up to almost a grand. Because when they announced Miller was going to be there, I was interested in hearing him talk. Yeah. Regardless of his current reputation amongst a large part of the comics internet. Yeah. He wrote some of the classic comics of my youth. Mm -hmm. So I was very interested in hearing him talk, but not for a grand. (laughs) Uh, And I guess... He must be doing it right. (laughs) There you go. Well, he can't have been doing it that right, because I guess the people who run the con realized there weren't enough people in Boston... Who wanted to hear Frank that badly to pay that much to hear him talk. <laughs> so they did open it up to a certain amount of regular convention goers and we were lucky enough to, to get tickets to go see it. Yes. Yeah. And it was a weird thing with Miller's most recent work. I, I almost want to say Dark Knight three excluded because he's not drawing it. He's only co-writing it. Mm. Nobody really knows how much of that is Azarello and how much is is Miller. And it does didn't... seem pretty intertwined, although I get the impression that Miller is doing more of the insert little comic book than well, yeah. Azarello is. He's doing some art and some full writing on some of those, as yeah. is uh, Azarello. But the main plot in the main book, it's and they didn't really address in the panels, you know, who's really doing what and how much. Yeah, it just sounds like they get together and 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 just kind of go to town. Yeah. It, <laughs> Which is fine, and it kicks the living shit out of Dark Knight 2. So far. That's not hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I've gotten drunk, and trying to figure out how to learn to write with a fountain pen have come out with better shits than large parts of Dark Knight 2. Yeah. I've written haiku about spam that's better than... <laughs> that hangs together better. <laughs> that makes more sense. That follows a plot point from A to B. Well, anything that starts with glistening pearlescent pork. Uh, Don't look at me like that. You've already read it. <laughs> yeah, but I was drunk. I tried to forget it. And aren't things really supposed to end with glistening? I can't even say it. Only had half a beer on top. That's how it's supposed to end, goddammit. That, that there's a dick joke. See? This show's got the dick jokes. We'll sell them to Civil War too at the low, low price. Of some fine Berkshire Steel Rail Pale Fine Berkshire. No, I have to pay for this myself still because <laughs> nobody has contacted the fine people at Berkshire Brewing Company. Why, I have four of them here to get through this show. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel it's the only thing that gets me through the show, my life, most afternoons. <laughs> the odd morning. I have a problem is what I'm trying to say. Now put your hands together for the man who's falling apart before our eyes. So anyway, I was looking forward to hearing... Frank speak. Yeah. What, what was your... Well, you know, interest mixed with a certain amount of trepidation because, again, he's got a reputation and we, we've gotten uh, texts surreptitiously from people who have gone to panels he's been at where they've, they've made um, comments that suggest that he may not be all there. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, that suggested there may have been uh, purely uh, hearsay, uh, some form of substance ingestion. 
perhaps? Um, not really the case with this panel. But yeah, there was a certain amount of trepidation because yeah, a lot of the public stuff that has come out of Frank since about uh, 2010 yeah. uh, has been somewhat controversial. I mean, uh, look, uh, Holy Terror, I have it. Yep. Uh, I read it. Well, it's because you're not likely to be able to go to the local library and, and just sort of check it out and then bring it back and say, yep, I've read it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I got it. I mean, look, it was Miller's first major work in a while. We reviewed it when we were a young website. It's still on the shelf. I don't think I've revisited it. No. Uh, I really don't intend to at this point. There was uh, the, the big deal about his blog post screaming about... Muslims and mm. holy war and which is gone from his website now. I actually went and checked and there's just a big <laughs> under construction with a Batman sketch on it as if it never happened. Yeah. So I mean, basically you, you just aren't sure which Frank is going to show up to a panel. So I went to it going, all right, well, I've got a respect for the man, uh, his work on, on Batman year one and the dark Knight, And I loved his, his, art that he did with Chris Claremont on the Wolverine run, that that really classic one back in the day. <laughs> yeah. So you got to, even if he's problematic at this point, you can't disrespect the tremendous work he did earlier. Yeah, it comes down to the artist and the art. And yeah. sometimes you have to separate them. Uh, sometimes it is difficult. I mean, I've said, I think I've said on this show, uh, I love Hunter S. Thompson's writing. I thank God I never met the man. I feel yeah. that way about Harlan Ellison. Um, Frank, I was happy to hear speak. Yeah, I'm probably okay. I didn't meet him. I think I'm okay with that. Just to be on the safe side. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll dissect some of the the clips. <laughs> and let's be fair. Weird, controversial Frank, except for a couple little flashes. We didn't really see him. No, he he pretty much held it together. <laughs> oh man, if that's the bar you're setting for, for somebody. Get your shit together, man. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it's, we mostly got a, an articulate Frank. Uh, I, I will, I, I will say, I looked it up. Frank Miller is 14 years older than we are. Wow. He looks a thousand fucking yeah. years old. He looks like he got to the convention by way of parting the Red Sea. <laughs> <laughs> I hesitate to bandy about terms like Methuselah. Yeah. But- <laughs> I mean, we just, uh, on stars, I think the other night, you had, uh, the first Sin City on, which yeah. is, uh, only about 11 years old. Yeah. And that Frank Miller and the Frank Miller who arrived at the panel, one was the other's son or yeah. something. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how the man's living. Uh, my question, honestly, at this point is given the work that Azarolo has been doing with Miller now for some time on this and some other projects, is is Azarello getting paid extra to be like Frank's Wrangler or like a stipend from Didier? Like just 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 be the, the Miller Whisperer. Just, like, <laughs> I don't know. Given a couple things Azarello said during the panel, I'm not sure he's a yeah, right or, guy is, for or that is Miller either. rubbing off on Azarello at yeah. this point in some weird like like whatever happened to Johnny Depp from hanging out with Hunter Thompson too much? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I'm not sure about that. But the the panel uh, wound up being uh, Miller. Uh, Dan DiDio, DC's co-publisher, and Brian Azzarello, who's been working with him on Dark Knight 3. Uh, and yeah, I pulled far more audio from this panel than I originally intended, uh, or that I originally thought I would, because uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff. But just a few notes before we start up. Number one, uh, the panel audio from last week's Boston Comic Con show uh, was terrible. 
<laughs> we didn't realize until it was brought to our attention by some listeners. It's a work in progress. Please continue to give us your feedback. Yeah, it, it was muddy. Uh, I've done my best to clean it up both from the original uh, audio and also uh, Trebuchet, friend of the show, gave some suggestions on some board settings. So I've done some testing. It should be a lot clearer uh, this week. Uh, if it's not, I, I don't know what to tell you. I've done the best I can with what I have to work with. I'm not an audio engineer. I have four beers here. <laughs> I don't know if an audio engineer would have more or less, but either way, it just doesn't feel like the right amount of beer for that particular job title. There's four beers there and two of them are already, already open. Good luck, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, I try to work click. Uh, quick, rather. Two beers. <laughs> Clearly, it's working. Pause for beer. How is that lovely steel rail pale ale? Oh, it is one of the finest beers anybody <laughs> could hope to have. That's right. Berkshire Brewing Company. <laughs> I'll stop doing it as soon as I get free beer. Or I'll do it the whole fucking show. All uh, down with it. Um, I'll keep writing spam coup if people send spam. <laughs> you don't even eat spam. Yeah, but, you know, someday there'll be the zombie apocalypse. Uh, no, I won't. I won't care. <laughs> we've, we've established we've talked about it. I have, like, living. legitimately, in the last 24 hours, seen a doomsday prepper commercial. Like, somebody that was shilling for doomsday preppers. It was a whole, like, like frozen, dried, freeze-dried beef stroganoff and other products that you should keep in your basement in the event of doomsday <laughs> just add water i already keep everything or maybe I need. the blood of your enemies i don't know but <laughs> i keep everything i need already down here in the basement there's michter's rye there's jack daniels there's <laughs> whistle pig and once that's gone i don't want to live anymore you don't even really have to add water to those and uh, some would argue it's sell it if the if, if the zombies attack i ain't gonna oh. <laughs> Seriously, though, I'm, like, I'm watching this like, this is really happening. This is a thing that I'm seeing on my television. And it, then I realized I could hit fast forward because we have TiVo. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what can I tell you? It's an election year. It's a terrible, terrible election yeah. year. And with most election years in the United States, it makes the apocalypse look like a, a sane and reasonable alternative. Mom, can I please have some more freeze-dried stroganoff? Said no child ever. <laughs> after, you, <laughs> after you pick the leeches off your brother. <laughs> Anyway, we went to see Frank Miller. <laughs> we did. Uh, one other note I want to do up front. Some of these uh, clips I did have to cut down. Now, I never cut them to change the content uh, or to change the meaning of what anybody said. The reality is Frank Miller is an artist and not a public speaker. Uh, he says, I'm a lot. He, uh, <laughs> he makes us sound like... Like that guy from the FedEx commercials and the micro machine, <laughs> micro machine commercials from the 80s. He yes. pauses a lot. So... Yes, he needs tightening up occasionally, and I have the technology with which to do it, and I didn't want this to be a four-hour show, so I've done it. So, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you might hear, it's like, hey, they cut that. It's like, yeah, because... There was a pause. Uh, yeah, there was a... Th- a pregnant, pregnant pause. Five to eight second pause. <laughs> didn't happen a lot, but it did happen. All right, do we sort of want to dive right into Let's... into this? Uh, we'll start out with uh, Dan DiDio. Uh, a man who's never prone to exaggeration or hyperbole, <laughs> giving his uh, his introduction to Frank. This, for me personally, it's been one of the great experiences of working at DC Comics. Um, actually, yeah, and fuck you, Jeff Johns. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, uh, Frank, wow. Frank's done fourteen issues of comics in fifteen years, I think, <sighs> and one graphic novel they had to reject because it was too fascist for Batman. <laughs> So yeah, suck it, Jeff. One of my great pleasures. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Sorry about that. It's the one time I was ever really starstruck when I first started at DC when I had a chance to meet 
Uh, the next person, um, he was bringing in pages to Dark Knight 2 at the time. Final edition 30s was coming in. And just the level of passion and work, it just was inspiring to me to be part of it, but also it's inspired so many great people. The, the, the credit. Dark Knight 2 was? I, he drinks. I suspect also <laughs> that Dan DiDio drinks. Ah, uh, okay. It's too long. The introduction is too long. It's time to introduce Mr. Frank Miller. <laughs> I, I cut the applause because there was like a minute of applause. It's uh, Look, it was cool to see the guy, even though I, I wish he looked a little better. <laughs> you eating right, Frank? Are you eating anything? <laughs> sandwich? Would you like a sandwich? You're drinking breakfast? That's <laughs> that's a rumor. I don't know anything about that. All right. So, yeah, they basically started right off. Uh, they started off, for whatever reason, with Dark Knight 2. I get Frank Miller a tub of freeze-dried stroganoff. I'm, I'm worried he's not eating. <laughs> <laughs> Rumor is he's ready for the apocalypse one way or the other. <laughs> He'd probably accept the gift very kindly. Mm. But uh, yeah, it started off uh, with, for whatever reason, they decided let's start by talking about Dark Knight 2, and then they went back to 1, And but we've got all of it. So uh, yeah, this is uh, Miller uh, talking about how on Dark Knight 2 he wanted to bring in basically the entire DC universe. When I, when I, when I got to do, when I said to the sequel, Dark Knight, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to open up the world of it and uh, play with the whole playground of DC Comics. There were, there were some guest stars in the first Dark Knight from the DC pantheon of heroes and villains, but essentially it was Batman's world with Superman as a, as a guest star in Punching Bag. <laughs> and, uh, and in this one I thought, let's, let's bring in the spandex. Let's, you know, let's, let's bring in the Atom, let's bring in the Bottle City of Candor. And all that goofy stuff that I grew up with. Now, one thing I forgot to mention is uh, we sat in a row with people who apparently just couldn't enjoy the Frank Miller experience without opening up a bag of Funyuns every 30 to 80 <laughs> seconds. Just shit's crinkling. They're looking at all their loot. And uh, Amanda, you asked earlier if, oh, well, will we hear the woman who is playing Pokemon Go behind us? Uh, yeah, we'll hear. Ding. <sighs> ding. Over and over again through this. I, I came very close to losing my shit on that woman. Yeah. Like, there's a mute button, or at the very least, put it on vibrate. Stick it in your lap. Have some fun. Leave us alone. Shh. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's the risks of uh, not having access to the actual uh, audio board when yes. you try and record these panels. So you'll hear it gets a little better as it goes along and everybody settles down. But and the other thing is, and again, this got a little better as it went along. But early in the panel, Frank clearly did not understand the concept of microphone. <laughs> And yeah. I, there were times where he would not get closer than two feet away. So, yes, there's some processing there that unfortunately bumped everything else up. But, yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me about that that quote was how the concept of bringing in other DC heroes really – and I think that was when Dark Knight 2 started to fall apart for me. Because mm. one of the strengths of the first Dark Knight is all the heroes have gone. It's not that, oh, some have been captured and they've been put to work. Like in Dark Knight 2, Luther had the Flash running on a treadmill to create electricity. It's like, oh, not the heroes are are abused and lost. It was that they have forsaken us. Yeah. Including Superman, who hadn't forsaken us, but was trying to take the path of least resistance by working for the government and mm -hmm. doing these secret military actions. So that was the kind of world where Batman coming back could have a real impact you start bringing everybody else in, what is Batman's impact? <laughs> that was question. part of the problem. <laughs> I think that was part of the problem with, with Dark Knight 2. 
there really was almost no impact overall. It's, you know, all right, Batman's manipulating the media by way of the super chicks and some other weird stuff. And it's, it's just such a different book that I tried at Godfather 3 out of my head. <laughs> And which I reread maybe a year ago or two years ago when they were talking about Batman versus Superman. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be a post-credits surprise on this show. On this show? Yes. <laughs> it's hardly a surprise now. You well, spoiled it. I know, but uh, I, I imagine a lot of people press stop as soon as humanly possible. <laughs> Thank God it's over! He it's said, over! He said derp. We're out. We're out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we talked last week about... Uh, Interesting questions that you get. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, what did you do? Uh, I, I kept one of the interesting questions. <laughs> oh, boy. As it played out into fucking utter madness. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, just going through my notes here. All right. No, it, well, all right. Frank uh, said he, he tried to, uh, air quote, take all this goofy stuff, like he said at the end of the quote, as seriously as he could as he tried to introduce other characters. So here's something on uh, his logic behind how he did The Flash in Dark Knight 2. For instance, to do The Flash, I couldn't compete with Carmen Infantino. I couldn't draw a million little figures of The Flash running and be as anatomically perfect as he was and, and, and dazzle you that way. So I just made him already there. I didn't show him running. He was already sitting there because he was so fast you couldn't see him go. Fast and anatomically perfect. <laughs> Jesus, Frank. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <sighs> One of the things that came across between him and Azarello over the course of this panel was that clearly both of them were of a mind that they had difficulty wrapping their head around superheroes in general and would prefer to write crime-oriented stories, it's, it seemed. Azarello in particular. The, oh, you mean when Azarello said this? The superheroes just bored the, the piss out of me when I was a kid. It was like, uh, I really read war stories. And it showed with a lot of his superhero writing. But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> you, you were saying. No, I just... It, and it, that kind of attitude that came across in the panel sort of explains a lot about a lot of the writing both of these writers do regarding superheroes. Yeah, it's I'm not sure how much love for particularly from Azarello. Yeah. Now, Azarello writes a hell of a crime comic. Like there's almost nobody better. I love 100 Bullets. His superhero stuff has left me cold. You know, his Superman stuff having Superman argue with a priest over his role in the world just uh, didn't do a lot for him. I'd, his Wonder Woman didn't do a lot. His for Wonder me. Woman didn't do a lot for and me. I think that's his longest run on any superhero. Yeah. And, and even with, with Miller, particularly as he's gotten older, it seems like his love is more for writing about dystopia. And if superheroes happen to be shoehorned into the story, so be it. <laughs> well. I'm not sure so much about dystopia. I think he's always loved crime comics more. Yeah. And I think that's what revolutionized Daredevil was there weren't a lot of people in the late 70s, early 80s doing just straight up crime comics to turn Daredevil into a street level vigilante fighting the mafia and doing crime stories with it was really interesting. How much he really, you know, again, he's like all that goofy stuff from when I was a kid how much love is there and how much, all right, well, let me see if I can tackle this and make it seem like it makes any sense or anything. Who the hell knows? Well, that's what I'm saying, though. Like, you know, when he, when he describes superhero stuff as goofy, <laughs> and, I, and I get that the, the superheroes that were prevalent in the 60s were goofy. <laughs> sure. 
But at the same time, when we, you know, talk now about some superhero properties and people get adamantly like, oh, why does it have to be all dark and grim and gritty? And how people get very excited about television Flash, for example, or television Supergirl, because they've embraced the fact that they are a superhero property and seem somewhat gleeful about it, even when there are dark moments. Yeah, there is fun to be had in having superhuman powers. It's it's bright and, and four-color-esque, and yeah. there's a joy there that celebrates superhero-dom, and it feels as Miller's work has gone on, he just wants to play in the, in the black and gray areas. Well, and uh, he's... He's a product of the 80s, and, and they talk a little bit about comics in the 80s later on. We've got some decent audio on it. But it's easy to forget right now, back in the Silver Age, you know, there was somebody, I don't know if it was uh, uh, Mort Neitlinger, I, I can never pronounce his name, the, the head of DC back then, mm. or if it was Stan Lee, but the prevailing attitude was, our audience ages out of comics within three years. They start reading at seven or eight, and by 11 or 12, they're interested in girls, because girls don't read comics. So, yeah, it's we can just keep doing the same thing every three years, and that's our audience, 8 to 11. So everything was bright, because it was for children. Yeah. The exciting thing about being in your teens in the 80s was, uh, yeah, comics are trying to get older with me. Now, they were getting older maybe into adolescent rebellion, but I was 16. Right. Okay, cool. <laughs> No, and, and I get where you're coming from, but I think also the logic has to continue to follow, and then eventually they will be older than 16, and eventually they will be older than 25. So who are you writing for? <laughs> well, yeah, and now that you know we are probably arguably the median age of comic book readers, now would be the time to reintroduce nostalgia of those childhood tales, and maybe that's why brighter things like Flash and Supergirl and you know, things like Rebirth that are and, bringing yeah, back. doing Earth. away the moratorium on marriage and children. I had actually a really good time reading the last couple of uh, Rebirth Superman with Superman family. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I've been buying Superman for the last two months for the first time regularly since the first... I, I got the first issue of Superman for New 52, which... No fault of George Perez's was an unholy mess. <laughs> like, yeah, I there think was I'm editorial done. issues, from what I understand. Yeah, and I I did continue to get action comics, even though what Grant Morrison wound up doing was a little bit odd. From Grant Morrison? Yeah, no. I know, hard to believe. But <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's they're they're finding some kind of middle ground that works for the forty somethings. Yeah, for right then, now, <laughs> and that maybe will work with younger children as long as they keep it sort of at a. I don't know, PG-13-ish level. Perhaps. We'll but, see. But yeah. <laughs> but that attitude of, uh, these are stupid and let's bring them into the, <laughs> bring them into the 20th century it doesn't necessarily fly as hard as it did back then. Yeah. Uh, clearly, uh, Frank has not gotten the memo because here are his comments on Green Lantern. <laughs> Green Lantern. I just really looked over my Green Lantern comics and I went, I get it. He's God. He can do anything. He's a this man worships a pilot in spandex. He thought we wouldn't notice, but we did. He's got a magic. He's got a magic lamp that can build or make anything. And I thought, what is holding this guy back? Yellow. <laughs> yellow wasn't enough. There had to be some other secret component besides yellow that was holding the Green Lantern back. And I finally figured out what it was. He's dumb as a post. <laughs> and I think 
uh, number one, uh, his whole weighty, you know, oh, he's God, I think says a lot about what Miller's attitude towards superheroes and generals kind of might be. Because mm. if you look at what he did in Dark Knight 2 and what's happening in Dark Knight 3, there's like a certain threshold of superhero power that he seems to be okay with. Yeah. Like, Flash is fast. That's okay. That's that's not... The Adam shrinks. Fine. That's all right. But anything much more powerful than that, and it's it's like he says that's worthy of contempt. Right. The, the idea that you have so much power that, yeah, your magic... You, Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, you, you have to be flawed yeah. in some terrible way and brought low by mankind. And particularly the daughter of Superman and Wonder Woman. Good Lord, they bred. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, <laughs> you, you've, you've got to bring them low and it has to be mankind that does it. And that, that was great in Dark Knight when there was only one superhuman. You know, when you get a bunch of it, you know, particularly in Dark Knight 2, it's almost like crapping on superheroes, you know, completely. You know, Wonder Woman and Superman banging in the sky because they can. And Shazam's just a child in a man's body. And yeah, Green Lantern dumb as a stick. And it's it's half a why Dark Knight works for me and Dark Knight 2 doesn't. Dark Knight celebrates Batman and holds him up as a mirror toward Superman who can do anything and yet decides to allow himself to be led. Yeah. And Dark Knight 2, it's, oh, superheroes are all stooges and try to become above us and don't care what we think. It was not a successful writing exercise. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not for me. And yet it's on the bookshelf. It's on the bookshelf for research purposes. That's God's honest truth. <laughs> yeah, much like Holy Terror is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, it's so... This is what I'm saying. It was really interesting to sit in the panel in the moment and listen to them talk. But then you, like I said, we're dissecting these clips after the fact. And it really does shed a lot of light on, on why I have become disenchanted with Miller's later work. Yeah. Well, I became just disenchanted with it because none of it worked for me as I was reading it. But this gives me an, an insight into why, like what his thought process was and why I, I, didn't like where the stories went and you can't blame him this is how he's approaching these stories but all right now i know that this is truly what he thinks about these properties well uh, some of it he doesn't think nearly as, deep, <laughs> as deeply at all because uh, here's what he said about uh why he did what he did with the atom in dark knight 2 and, and with the atom it was a matter of the atom doesn't get big again uh, does adam doesn't get small things get big and then it becomes interesting to draw that man thinks it's interesting when things get big he thought we wouldn't notice <laughs> But we did. Thinly veiled <laughs> dick joke. No, <laughs> uh, oh, it gets better. <laughs> here's, here's what he said about uh, his take on Black Canary. In Black Canary, she was in there because she had the best costume any girl ever had in comics. How many, how many supergirls have fishnets? <laughs> Satana and Black Canary. Black Canary has got the blonde wig. I'm beginning to think the subtitle of this panel should have been <laughs> How to Get Frank Miller Off for yeah. Beginners. <laughs> Frank Miller, Frank Miller Boner 101, maybe. <laughs> you know, as somebody who is often emotionally 12, I think Frank Miller is emotionally 12. <laughs> it's, it's permanently well, crippled, stuck at emotionally 12. I, I can't argue too much with that because I'm the same way. I'll say it to anybody who, who will listen. In many ways, I'm never going to be any older than 12. And, and that's fine. But, but again, the artist in the art. The problem is the later art is not working nearly as well for us. You know, if he's in a state of arrested development, that's his business. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. This is true. So, 
All right, well, we'll take a, a short side trip away from Frank Miller and do some uh, Brian Azzarello. Uh, this is him talking about the differences for him on doing work for hire characters as opposed to creator-owned stuff. I mean, I, I approach, approach the creator-owned work and the work for hire the same way. You know, if I don't have a good story to tell, I'm not going to tell a story. You know, I don't care if it's something that, you know, that I'm doing myself or if it's one of these characters. If I don't have anything to say about Wonder Woman, I wouldn't have done her for three years. Mm-hmm. I did Wonder Woman for three years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I hey, Beavis. <laughs> hey, Beavis. I did Wonder Woman. I stand corrected. This is how to get Frank Miller and Brian Azzarello off. <laughs> I don't know. Azzarello, I can argue you had nothing, nothing to say about Wonder Woman for three years. And we're we're in the minority on it, but I tried like hell to read Azzarello's Wonder Woman because it got such great reviews and not from us, but I just, I tuned out very quickly, whereas... Like I said, we just got the first volume, just came out last Wednesday, of the reprint of George Perez and Len Wein's run mm. from post-crisis on Wonder Woman. I burned through six issues in 45 minutes. It was really somewhat compelling, and I'm not the world's biggest Wonder Woman fan. I'm looking forward to sitting down with that. It'll probably be Labor Day weekend at this point. Well, <laughs> that's all right. We got a stack of trades that we picked up between Boston <laughs> Comic Con and just stuff that I grab at the comic store. As we try to get through the actual books of the week to do this show, the trades are becoming neglected. I'm trying to get through the first trade from Marjorie Lou's Monstrous, which is, if you haven't read it, a tremendous story. I have not read with it. With just spectacularly beautiful art. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I've gotten like four pages in because life. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I've read some of the individual issues, that, which is why I was excited to get the trade. But yeah, I just haven't had the time to sit down and, and really go through it the way that it deserves to be read. And unfortunately, that happens with us. So we buy so many books every week. I've said it a million times. I spend more on comic books every week than I used to spend on cigarettes. And I smoke two packs a day. And we wind up reading all of them eventually, but some of them do sort of wind up in a pile of two catch up. Yeah. And then we wind up getting the trade later on just so we can have it in one quick and easy burst because sorting through the pile of two catch up can be a nightmare. Well, and I, I at this point sort of put things in piles based on, am I going to need it to need it for this week's show? And so, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I sat there with today, uh, with, with this week's polls and I made like three piles and it was, here's the rebirth pile, here's the civil war pile and here's everything else. <laughs> and if that doesn't make a statement about the state of comics. <laughs> and then, and then after, after all of that, when you said, okay, what books do you want to talk about? I handed you one from civil war and an independent book. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> Although the the one that was on the fence was uh, Batman, the Batman number five, yeah. which was a killer end to that arc. Yes. Uh, last issue, I forget if we talked about it on the show, but the number four was sort of, uh, all right, this is starting to falter. Some stuff's making some jumps around. Uh, no, Batman five. Yeah. Tom King is killing it on that book. It's it's a great book and we won't necessarily get to review it the way that it deserves. But if you haven't, if you had any reservations about the switch from Snyder to another writer, don't just jump in there, get the first five issues. Yes, the the trade will probably be coming out soon. So do yourself a favor. It's it's solid. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the DC Rebirth <laughs> books. Batman doing all right so far. Yes, uh, but all right. anyway. <laughs> so yeah, uh, speaking of Batman, at this point in the panel, uh, conversation thankfully turned away from Dark Knight Two and back to the original Dark Knight Return. So this is Frank. This is kind of a, a longer clip. This is I got a few longer clips in here. 
which just means I'll interrupt them for stupid jokes, probably. But <laughs> not you. Uh, I know. Hard she to said interrupting him. <laughs> yes, but uh, this is uh, Frank uh, talking about some of the origins of uh, the Dark Knight Returns. How he originally got Batman. Period uh, versus Dark Knight Returns. Well, the Dark Knight thing started with a um, conversation with Jeanette Kahn, who's running DC Comics, and and uh, she wanted me to come over from Marvel and, and do Batman for DC. Batman at the time was losing money, and, and they were wide open for new ideas and different ways to treat Batman. There's nothing, one thing I always tell people who are just getting started, look for a loser. Don't try to pick up X-Men. Try to find a book that nobody's reading and make it shine. Then you'll make yourself a reputation. And so I got this loser called Batman. <laughs> and, 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 uh... Now, he says loser called Batman. And yeah, you might get a, a lower body pucker <laughs> thinking about that. But Didio, I believe, clarifies what's going on historically at this point in comics. Yeah, there, there's a, a real point behind it. And actually, I think you talked about it last week, but I did pull the uh, the actual audio where Didio sort of explained some of the context with with that statement. Not that anybody thought Batman was <laughs> was a loser character, but and anyway, here's Didio. I want to contextualize this because it's very important for people to realize this. <laughs> In 1984, Batman was the number 49 book being sold. It sold less copies than US-1 from Marvel. <laughs> okay? Just to put it in perspective, so when Frank describes this, it's not talking about the character being a loser, but the fact that it wasn't selling. Yeah, uh, and US-1 is, by the way, the second worst comic ever published <laughs> in the history of humanity. <laughs> wow. It's. It, it, have I talked about this on the... I, I think I talked about it last week because I, because you brought up the US one thing. And yeah, it was, if you're not familiar, it was Marvel did the, back in the, okay, long history. <laughs> in the 1970s, there was a gentleman named Evil Knievel who liked to crash his motorcycle into things and call it stunts. And if you were a child, you could get a toy that was a motorcycle that you could put onto a little ramp and using a little crank could make it go off its own little ramp under its own power and crash into things, and you could pretend you were Evil Knievel. By the mid-'80s, nobody gave a shit about Evil Knievel anymore because he could barely walk and uh, we had better things to do. So they resurrected Evil Knievel toys as Team America toys, which were exactly the same toys, but just with people with different colored jumpsuits. Same exact toys, but my parents still weren't buying them for me. Right. But (laughs) Marvel, in this particular time, said, hey, there's probably money in doing licensed comics on these toys that somehow have no backstory and yet will have a fucking toy with them. Mm. And one of them was Team America, which wound up being a team of three guys, uh, Are You Ready, uh, El Lobo, and uh, I don't know, some dude who used to be with the Air Force or something, and they would ride their motorcycles around doing stunts and solving crimes <laughs> eventually they became mutants and they were sort of folded it but they did the same thing with rom and they did it with this toy that was just a big truck toy called us one that for your your dopier children you could give them this truck and then they could pretend that they were long-haul truckers preparing them for their future eating truck stop meth and just driving around the country so how has Ma- this not been optioned for netflix yet because it sucks so <laughs> So Marvel put out a US-1 comic based on just this truck toy, and I think it was Bill Mantlo, because Bill Mantlo was genius at coming up with stories for these stupid fucking toys. But yeah, it was a trucker called uh, Ulysses Samuel, whatever, but his name was like USA. Ulysses something Archer, I think. And he was a 
a genius who went to MIT, uh, and yet uh, all he wanted out of his life was to long-haul truck. So he went back home to drive the family truck, and this evil trucker called the Highwayman ran him off the road. So he wound up bashing his head apart, and then he got a cybernetic skull, and he could drive his truck with a silver dollar that somehow had enough electronics in it to drive a truck. And then he drove his truck around solving crimes. So it was like a Raspberry Pi, but a silver dollar. Uh, Kind of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was strawberry sh- shortcake, only with a less satisfying fucking backstory. Apparently, it was absolutely awful. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I, how how could that not have been the most glorious comic of all time? I'm confused about this. The and, and we talked about it last week because back when Dan DiDio used to do his San Diego panels of what we love about comics. That's the only time I've spoken in a panel. I brought that comic up, and somebody, and I believe it was Chris Sims, smacked from, you down. War Rocket Ajax <laughs> loudly argued with me that it was a ter- that it wasn't a terrible comic. It was a terrible comic, absolutely awful. Well, we've we've discussed some of the things that have come up on that particular podcast that we've disagreed with. So I'm not surprised that you were at odds with him over this. I, I, <laughs> I support you in your vision. I, I'm You're not, not crazy at all. I, he seems like a perfectly fine gentleman on his podcast, but I doubt we'll sit down ever and split a fine Berkshire Brewing <laughs> Company, Steel Rail, Extra Pale Ale. Can we just stop for a second? I, I'm still hung up on the whole Team America thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think, As is America, baby. <laughs> I think that um, unless somehow uh, the the South Park people still own sort of the, the rights to the name because Team America, fuck yeah. <laughs> um, I, I really think that having been subjected to parts of Hot, hot Rod while you were sleeping. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Which is uh, the Andy Samberg uh, pseudo stunt movie in yeah. pursuit of getting Poon. The, um, <laughs> the magnum opus that was so compelling, clearly I fell asleep. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried to soldier through it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody asked you to do that, and you don't deserve that. You deserve better. Thanks. Um, in any event, I'm still hung up on on having been subjected to that, and I'm thinking that actually Team America sounds like an excellent Andy Samberg vehicle, and they ought to do webisodes on Lonely Island. <laughs> I, I, I even forgot the best part. The, the mutant power that these cycle jocks had was when when certain things would happen, when the stress became too much, they would all vanish and become... The Marauder. Oh, God. Who was wearing basically like a ninja suit with a black motorcycle, and then he, he would ride around stopping crimes. Well, clearly that's a Kenny Powers vehicle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Somebody get these people on this. <laughs> you know, uh, the 80s for all the nostalgia for the, the pastel and the neon it really had some down parts. Somebody called Danny McBride. <laughs> you know, I say reading comics was an exciting time in the 80s. I really mean more the late 80s. <laughs> the early 80s. Uh, I, I had US1. <laughs> it got and, better. It got better. <laughs> sure it did. It did. We got Dark Knight. And that was awesome. Yes. And we have Frank Miller talking about Dark Knight. All right. So... So yeah, this is Frank talking about uh, the first scene that he came up with in Dark Knight Returns. And again, this is a longer clip. I sat down with Dick Giordano, Batman editor at the time. and He sat down with Dick. Of course. I didn't interrupt the last one, so I felt I had to purely to say I did it on this one. Don't look at me like that. A man of terrific editorial instincts. And, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't boss you around and tell you what words to use or tell you what villains to use, but he just had 
he could just get to the guts of something. And he said, you know, I blew my lunch one day, and he said, you know, the only way Batman works is if you make the readers really, really mad. And then we got holy terror. <laughs> so they wanted to show up. So I started playing around with a story where, where there was a, there was a, you know, you're in Gotham and you're, and there, there's a scene you can't see taking place in Taxi Cab where the prostitute's in the cab and she, and her pimp's in there with him. And we don't know exactly what she's doing to the poor woman, but he's clearly mutilating her. And then there's the thump on the roof. And very terrible things happen to the, to the pimp. I mean, you never see any of it happen. But, but the, but I did this scene and I realized the satisfaction I felt doing it. And I realized I'd hit on something that went beyond you'll believe a man can fly. See, the weird thing about that one is... I th- you'll believe a man can pop a roid. <laughs> you'll, you'll believe uh, when he says the satisfaction he felt writing it uh, doesn't mean emotional. <laughs> but no, the, the weird thing is the best part about that scene, which wound up in The Dark Knight Returns, is not that part. It's when Batman, you just see his hand come down and take the tip that the pimp gave the cappy, the cabbie, and tear it up and drop it right in front of him. <laughs> so even Frank is remembering his own work differently than the stuff that I think worked for. At least that's a part of it that worked best for me. Yeah, that, that he's right. That's a great scene, but that's the money shot. It's a, of course Batman will come and stop the man mutilating a prostitute, but he'll also stop you from profiting from somebody else's crime. Right. That's Batman. And that's what was cool about that scene, at least for me. I don't know. No, I, but I, I think there is probably a subset of readers that were into it for simply the we always wanted to see Batman just lay down the smack and they were in it for the violence. Oh, yeah. Certainly, God knows Dark Knight Returns had plenty of that for everybody. Yeah. I think that was more what Miller was speaking to in his remembrance. Yeah, it's possible. But a couple of the bigger moments from Dark Knights for, for me that are similar, there's that one. Uh, and then there's the one where, yeah, he's dressed up as the homeless woman to interrupt Bruno in the liquor store robbery. And as he's chasing Bruno out the door and the liquor store owner is ready to put a gun to uh, to one of the mutants heads, says, pull that trigger, I'll be back for you. It's all right. That's Batman. It's it's all crime. Yeah. Well, there's certainly notes where he, he remembers <laughs> yeah. what it's supposed to be about. But given the sort of comics that this began to give rise to. Um, the spawns of the world and, and all of that. There's, there's a, an audience that was into this for the violence and less about what Batman really means. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any coincidence that the Punisher almost immediately with Circle of Blood and then Mike Barron's series became huge for Marvel. And then, yeah, the Dark Ages came from it. The message that people took was, yeah, the violence is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and let's face it, at 16, that was probably two-thirds of it for me. I'm older now, but... So, yeah, I've also got a clip here uh, of sort of the overall strategy that Frank had for how he put together uh, the original Dark Knight and some of the stuff that he was thinking. And so with Batman, it was all a matter of following Dick's advice. And, and he followed Dick. Bringing in the mythology, but bringing it in steadily, starting with with his roots, Zorro and things like that, the and, and Bruce Wayne's own torment with his parents' murder, and building it from the ground up as if there'd never been a Batman comic. 
And the, 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 essentially, you have to approach this stuff, unless you're following a, a team that's, that's just unbelievable, is to treat it like nobody's ever seen the comic book before. Jim Shooter, in fact, taught me at Marvel Comics to treat every issue as if nobody had ever seen it before, which was good advice. And actually, that strategy of every issue is the first, I think that's really part of why Dark Knight Returns worked so well to bring so many readers into comics or back into comics in the 80s because you could hand that trade to anyone. Hmm. Say, the football player who liked to smack your comic books out of your hands in the hallway. You <laughs> could give them that. I'm not saying anything like that happened, but you could. You give it to that. And that person would not need to know anything else about DC Comics or Batman or anything to, in order to see how cool Batman could be because it really was just about self-contained. You saw yeah. everything that you needed to see. And you saw things that even if your only familiarity with it was from the 1966 TV show, you know, you saw Catwoman, not the same Catwoman. <laughs> nope. You saw Joker, certainly not Caesar fucking Romero, unless <laughs> he had a massive stroke or some form of uh Charlie Whitman brain tumor or something <laughs> along those lines. But everything else that you needed for that to work, it, it was already there for you. And I think that's part of why that and Watchmen, they were self-contained things. To this day, you know, what would you give somebody, and this is probably unfair to the New 52, but what book would you give somebody for any character in the New 52 and say, this is the essence of whoever? There isn't anything, I don't Not think. Not really. I mean, some of oh, Death in the Family, maybe, that, that arc. But like, what, single issue? I'm not sure. It's not even single issue. It's I, I don't think there's any single issue of The Dark Knight Returns that is that whole Jim Shooter ideal of you don't need to know anything to get in. I'm talking about The Dark Knight Returns as a volume. Yeah. Or Watchmen as a collected volume. I, I think you could point to some of Snyder's stuff. You could hand somebody an arc because he, he has a well-developed understanding of, of Batman that it was not torn asunder by trying to reboot anything with New 52. Yeah, but even there, uh, which particular arc? You could argue... As I said, Death in the Family. Nah. Because yeah. I, think, I think the the whole trying to explore from the Joker side of things, his view of their relationship, I think that that was a cool story that had not been told yet. Yeah, there's a certain amount to be said for that, but even with that, it's that involves the extended Batman family Robin is Damian Wayne, and you could make the same argument up to a point with Dark Knight Returns. It's like, you know, if you if all you knew was a Batman TV show, it's like, well, why is he looking in this canister of uh, canister of clothing? That's not what it's called. Display case of clothing. <laughs> canister and saying, of clothing. <laughs> you know, who's Jason, and why are they talking about Jason? And but I think to you might have a point. I'm not sure that would. 100% work. I, I guess it's a question to to what degree do extraneous characters start to pull new readers out of a story and I think if you tell a story well enough then you've done enough uh, world building within your arc that you, you have a pretty clear understanding of who all the players are. The one thing I can think of that might meet that and, and even then technically it's an alternate universe version of the character but Brian Bendis's first 12 issue compendium of Ultimate Spider-Man. Okay. You could hand that to anybody who just sort of knew about Spider-Man and yeah. they would totally get the character and some of the antagonists and where he, that's a much longer book. And certainly it's the beginning of an ongoing, so it just sort of stops. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the one thing I can think of that kind of meets it. I would, I would put that probably above the Snyder run, uh, 
for for Batman, but you asked specifically within New Fifty Two, so that's what came to mind. Yeah, no, you're right, and that's that's better than I could have thought of for really any of the New Fifty Two characters, because. Yeah, if you hand somebody, say, Morrison's run on action comics, <laughs> do you know Superman? No, you do not. No. <laughs> you know more about Grant Morrison than you do about Superman. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm not sure what else would really make the nut. Well, and that's sort of, I think, why New 52 went away. Mm, yeah. All right, good point. All right, so then we sort of get away from uh, Dark Knight into some more general stuff. Uh, this is, again, a longer clip, but it's Miller talking about some of his influences, which I just thought was kind of interesting. Well, the most outstanding one would be Will Eisner, um, who I studied and luckily got to learn from directly. And as far as people just that I abstractly studied, Gil Kane for dynamics and anatomy. The, uh, Jack Kirby, Will Wally Wood for the just sheer attempt. If that didn't come out, he was muttering, oh, let's see, Jack Kirby, Will Eisner, and if you, we, we could hear it here in the headphones. Bill Kane but, for the anatomy. Or <laughs> yes, so, all right. So I just want to make sure, if you're listening and I fucked up the audio again, that you understood what Frank was saying. And then Azzarello piped up with Wally Wood. <laughs> <laughs> Wood. Did beauty, as lame as mine was, and, and uh, Jack Davis for expression. And so on. The easy guys in general were gigantic. Um, but, but Kurtz, other, Kurtzman. yeah, Kurtzman for storytelling. Of his type, the most outstanding. I mean, he, he was kind of like G.W. Griffith. He set a standard for a certain kind of storytelling and perfected it. There, since we've been able to branch off and expand on it since, but he set a kind of metric storytelling that, that, that was, was fundamental to any understanding of comics. All right, so, so two things about that clip. First, the positive thing. Uh, it really makes me want to start hunting down more old EC comics. Sure. Which are really kind of a big gap in my comics education, you know, if you want to think of it that way, which is something that I try to, to bear in mind. I, I try to look for things that are not necessarily superhero or, oh, this is a direct thing that came from this thing that I like now. Uh, but it's uh, the... One of them I can think of is Judge Dredd. I've been getting the Judge okay. Dredd complete case files on and off for years. Because, yeah, Judge Dredd was this huge thing in British comics that I just had no exposure to beyond the fucking Sylvester Stallone movie at the time. And then the Carl Urban movie and, the, yeah, the Andy Helfer DC comics of Judge mm -hmm. Dredd from the mid-90s. That It's like, oh, this is kind of fun, but had nothing whatsoever to do with continuity. So, yeah, great. Just what I need. I got to buy more big, expensive, hardcover fucking volumes of, <laughs> of Tales from the Crypt. Well, we've been meaning, mad. meaning to buy more bookcases anyway. <laughs> We're not going to be able to afford them. Can these can these compendiums be assembled into bookcases <laughs> by any chance? <laughs> is that a thing that we could do? But, uh, yeah, this is, on the other hand, this is one blip of that weird reputation, Frank, coming through by name-checking D.W. Griffith who directed Birth of a Nation, <laughs> Yeah, a movie about the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Now, to be fair, this is really as close as Frank to came in the panel to indicating he, he might have some kind of issue or go off the rails. Just walked up to the line. Yeah. So uh, on the other hand, from a pure technical standpoint, from what I've heard, things were done in that movie that have become cinematic shorthand with regards to the camera. That's probably what he meant. I'll, I'll look he it could up just and... as easily have name-checked, say, Citizen Kane, which has the same reputation. 
But I will I will read about it on Wikipedia. <laughs> but yeah, when Frank said D.W. Griffith, I sat forward. I'm like, if it's happening, it's happening now. If it's <laughs> happening, it's happening now. Get ready. But he, he stepped away from the abyss. Um, That's why I'm wondering if Azzarello has sort of become the wrangler. Like, if under the table he was just sort of poking him with the ballpoint, like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Maybe that's why he had the cane. He's been stabbed with a ballpoint yeah. so many times. <laughs> I don't know. But he did go, He did back away from the abyss there, and uh, he went into a story. Now, I've heard the story about how, I don't know if it's apocryphal. It probably isn't, but it's almost legend in comics, how Frank Miller went to New York. You know, he, he grew up in Vermont. Uh, went to high school there, went to New York to find his fortune in comics, had no idea who to talk to, so looked up Neil Adams in the phone book and called him and showed up and showed him his art, and Adams tore it down and said, nope, it's no good, try again, and created a mentor-mentee relationship that went, as far as I know, continues to today. Wow. But uh, this story I had not heard about how Neil Adams in certain ways literally kept Frank Miller alive in the 1970s until he started to actually start selling books. Now, when I first got into comics, Neil Adams ran a studio called Continuity Associates in Midtown Manhattan. And it was where comic book artists could come and pick up sort of day work for, for advertising. Um, just essentially junk work. But it would be enough to, to pay the bills so we could do comic books back then when, when the I mean, my pay for it was $25 when I first started working in comics. You can't live on that in Manhattan. By, by, by doing, by coloring fish sticks and drawing things like that, um, at Neil Adams Studio, I was able to, to make enough to survive. And it's, it's kind of the thing that I don't think it happens anymore because you don't have to go to New York and make your, to make your fortune in comics. Well, no, it, with the advent of digital technology, now you can do work from home and then email it. Yeah, so that's why we've got so many artists from all over the world who are really making a mark in comics. But yeah, back up until, I mean, Jesus, probably, probably in the eighties, the biggest technological wonder was FedEx. Yeah. You know, if, if you didn't live right in New York, tomorrow you can see my pages and then day after tomorrow I can find out what you think about them. Right. Which is not exactly going to work with a monthly book, I would imagine. Yeah. If you, if you were a writer, maybe. Maybe if you were particularly high toned, you had access to like an early fax machine. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me actually of, and this is a tangent away from comic books, but if you've read the, uh, the Bloom County compendiums from IDW. Yeah. Uh, Burke Brethed talks about how particularly early in his career, he would take red eye flights to New York and the syndicate with that week's pages because it was the only way that he could <laughs> get them there on time. Because he was just, he was pushing deadlines so hard. Wow. And he would do that every few weeks until he sort of found a rhythm, you know. <laughs> and it, you, you look at now, you, yeah, now he doesn't even need a syndicate. He presses dink on Facebook and right. he's published. So, but it's, yeah, back in the day, you know, Frank said his page rate was 25 bucks a page. Yeah, even in 1982 dollars. <laughs> That's not going <laughs> to not... give you money to live in New York. Yeah. So I just thought that was an interesting story. And it, it gives a certain amount of credit to Neil Adams if he was keeping a certain amount of the comics industry afloat by just handing out day work. Well, based on what we heard at the other panel we went to for DC, it sounds like Neil Adams is making all of his money back now in autographs. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> you need money if you're going to build the fucking well that's going to get you into the hollow earth where you can live forever. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I don't know whether he believes that for true or not, but that's the rumor. Okay, let's step away from the libel. <laughs> yes. That is a rumor I heard. Slander. And <laughs> I forget. If, it's, if we say it out loud, is it slander or libel? Libel's uh, in print, right? Don't worry. The judge will explain it to us. <laughs> Uh, all right, we'll step away from Frank Miller. Uh, we've got, uh, I just thought this was kind of interesting, uh, in sort of a torching your bridges kind of way. Uh, Brian Azzarello talking about his, uh, his first pitch trying to break into, uh, DC comics. Okay. Apparently for a while, and um, this is just from Googling around, he was an editor at maybe Comico or something for a while, but hadn't done a ton of comics work before he tried to break in, so. Uh, here is, and by the way, the editor he's talking about in this is Lou Stathis, okay. uh, who was an editor, uh, for Vertigo back in the, in the nineties. The first thing I pitched to DC was Phantom Stranger and, um, it had all the elements that he hated, that Lou hated. <laughs> and he said, but you made it work. At the time, Vertigo was, as he described it, fairies and elves and shit. And <laughs> last word important. And it really, it, it kind of was, it was all that dark fantasy stuff, you know. Everything was sort of like swirling around. When you, got, when, you got, when you got something that's named after a Hitchcock movie, and you put fairies and elves and shit in it, it's <laughs> wrong. Yeah, Sandman just, you know, created Vertigo Comics whole cloth and uh, kept Vertigo going for years yeah. as an almost independent entity and kept it vital through the 90s. Yeah, that's a fuck up, Frank. Yeah, Hellblazer. Mm. Terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible mistake, Frank. <laughs> that pitch went through and it was like 11th hour and it was supposed to it looked like it was going to get approved and we were like making plans and all this stuff and then Karen killed it because I was nobody it's like I didn't have a track record or anything she didn't want to give me a chance now to be fair and I didn't I wasn't able to get this on the audio but uh, Azarello said that his in with Stathis or St- I might be mispronouncing that but he said his in was that he knew him uh, when he was an editor of music and skateboard magazines. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> to, to be fair, uh, when the pitch comes from, yeah, I, I've done a couple of individual pieces of work, uh, and uh, I know the dude from back when he did skateboarding magazines. Maybe you want to be a little bit cautious. Now, to be fair, on the other side, you're saying this about the guy who who created and uh, wrote <laughs> 100 Bullets. Yeah, but. It- yeah, okay, as a, as a pitch, the character he might have been most likely to get a foot in the door with at the time in Vertigo would have been Phantom Stranger. Sure. Um, however, they'd kind of already established what Phantom Stranger was doing in those elves and fairies and shit books. Yeah. <laughs> so he, if he was going to take it in a radically different direction, that would be why Karen spiked it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it just, uh, that, that whole clip just struck me as a, as a, a unique way of saying everybody's stupid but me. <laughs> that's, that's a hell of a thing to say in front of the co-publisher of DC Comics. But then again, it's a co-publisher who let Garenberger get away and Virgo's kind of languished. And didn't and, do so good a job himself with Phantom Stranger. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. And then again, I say that, you know, how could you burn your bridges? Every episode of this show we do, <laughs> we make it clear we are never, ever going to be in with any comics publisher. 
No. You know, it's, no. I complain, God, I spend more on comics than cigarettes. I'm guaranteeing we'll never get a review copy of shit. Once in a great while, somebody... Or somebody will send us literally a book called Shit. That's, that will be what we get. That would be... To be fair, we've gotten some review copies from some some indie people, and it's and we love you people. Yes, and uh, we, keep sending them. Yeah, <laughs> we we don't get them very often. But we always look at them when we get them. Sometimes we talk to the people who send them on the show. We do, but yeah, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna get a preview of fucking Civil War Two Number Eight. <laughs> That's not coming. <laughs> And I, I would just show my lack of understanding and abuse that once I got it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Fire up the VPN. Yeah. Where's the pirate? Be- no, <laughs> we have never done that. We, we have never, never done do that. that. It's we would never distribute a review copy. We we don't don't give that roll of the eyes. It's uh, I we're asshats, but I try to be journalistically in integrities. Act, that's not a thing. You, did, you you like to believe that we demonstrate journalistic integrity. Yeah, as most people who drink during their show do. <laughs> <laughs> no, you you are correct. That's not a trust that we would break. You are correct. But if you talk at a panel, we might make fun of you. <laughs> but if the future is predetermined, no, wait. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it now. <laughs> All right. So I got another long, uh, long clip here, but, uh, this is actually from Miller and it's, uh, him talking about uh, as a follow up on what, uh, Azarello had just said in that point in the panel, uh, about how he managed to break in as a writer and some of the difficulties breaking in as a writer as opposed to an artist, even back in the eighties. I was able to get into comics as a field because I could draw. Not well, but I could draw. It's There was the ding. Did you hear it? I, I'm going to find that person <laughs> and remove their wrist. Uh, fuck. A much harder field for writers to break into. And in fact, the way a lot, the way a vast number of people become writers in comics is by becoming editors. Doesn't mean right, but it means they're in the office. And so it's, 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 it's a very... I know that's not going to come through. So he said, doesn't make it right, but it means they're in the office. Yeah. Very, very tough field to enter. I mean, people can tell pretty quickly if you can serviceably draw. Storytelling is a little hard to tell. But if they can't follow what's going on, they know you can't tell the story. But good writing is impossible to tell from... Ding! Every time that thing goes ding, a shitty story gets its wings. You happy, lady? <laughs> <laughs> Good writing is impossible to tell from bad writing unless you know what writing is. So it's, it's, it's a tougher field for writers to break into. Um, one of the points that Dick, one of the things that Dick Giordano did as an, as again with the Dick, as editor in chief of DC was he changed the royalty system so that it would pay writers more than it had before because he wanted to attract better and better writers to the field because he believed one of the things that was hurting DC was bad writing. He felt that the, the, as Gil Kane had once many times commented publicly, that the quality of artwork was much higher than the quality of writing in comics. And I think that that was one of the things, one of the many things that brought writers like Brian and Alan Moore into comics and brought the level of writing up quite dramatically. All right, so so the trick is just to be around the office. I guess. <laughs> now, how, how will our restraining order affect our ability to get this work? <laughs> Give it to the kid who brings us coffee. He'll write us a great epic. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I mean, they do say, and we've seen it on a million panels from a million different writers and creators and call everything colorists, letterers. The best way to get into comics 
is to make comics yes. and show that you know how to tell a story, be it as a writer or an artist or both. Or, you know, you could know the editor of Skateboarding Magazine. That might also work, but... I'm still kind of boggled with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a weird thing. It's You know, I'm joking about Azzarello and Miller during the... I've got nothing but respect for these guys. I, I've been known to write, but I know my limitations. I can't do what they do. And I, I'm at least smart enough, I think, to recognize I'm just a fan. And that's okay. Not everybody can not everybody can tell dick jokes into a microphone on the internet <laughs> and make it at least remotely entertaining. We at least entertain ourselves. Exactly. So I'm having fun. But... I'm ha- I'm ecstatic. Exactly. But I mean, at the same time, who knows if somebody offered you the opportunity to to co-plot something? Who knows? <laughs> uh, no. If somebody offered me the opportunity to be a porn star, I don't have the equipment to do that either. It's just the reality. I understand my limitations. That I will write first-person monologue dick jokes that'll make you weep in your seat, but I can't do story. I just, I can't do it. Do I want a dick joke to make me weep in my seat? You have not seen me cut loose, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're derailing. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on my third beer. Things are going terribly wrong. Um, so, all right, to, back to the panel? Sure. All right, so... Yeah, this is uh, both Miller and Azzarello talking about what it was like to be in comics in the 1980s. And this is another long clip. But again, as somebody who was in his teens in the 1980s, this this is my period in comics. It's my favorite period in comics. So to hear a legend from that period talk about it, I I wanted to make sure we, we got some of that in here. Like, like American flag, Howard James. That was like, whoa, this is like, that was a little stink. I mean, that was at the time outrageous. Yeah, it still is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it wanted to be. And it was, it was proudly outrageous. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a wild time. I, re- I remember it and where everybody was trying something new and it was to, to see what would stick to the wall because all of a sudden the field was exploding. There were publishers like Fanographics out there doing stuff that people hadn't seen before. Um, it was the first, first comics. First comics was competing more with, with, the, with Marvel and DC, the kind of thing. Yeah, but it was still edgier than yeah, well, Marvel and DC was doing. It was, it was trying to move comics into adolescence. And, and then DC and then finally Marvel started moving um, into growing up. And DC did it across the board. And Marvel did it by introducing the epic line, um, where they're willing to try more things. You understand this being like an arduous process by people who all by and large love comics and wish them no harm. Number one, it's easy to make fun of epic comics. Um, Because, yeah, it was really very much, in a lot of ways, Marvel was trying to put all their adult stuff in that one place. Yeah. But I don't think it's fair to say, oh, they didn't do anything with the rest of their line. This is the same time with like Spider-Man's doing Craven's Last Hunt. Mm. Um maybe that's the one big example I can think of <laughs> from Marvel back then cuz Marvel there were was, probably others. Yeah, but Marvel was all X-Men at that point. So everything was a big soap opera for teenagers for the most part, but They were playing my song. Yeah, but uh Epic Comics was the one place they were the first place to reprint Akira. Yeah. The original uh, manga. I remember that. Yeah. And, and they were colorizing it yep. and they did their best. They did it in prestige format. And I still have a few issues of that before Dark Horse finally came out with the big foam books with the whole epic. I'm not mm-hmm. sure epic ever fully completed the book. 
But yeah, Marvel did make some weird steps to that. They had their Shadow Line, mm. uh, <laughs> Shadow Line line of comics, which is just a an alternate universe of new superheroes that, yeah. were, that were just dicks. <laughs> <laughs> there was a oh Christ, I can't even remember. There was one I bought regularly. It wasn't Saint George was one Doctor Zero. Sounds familiar. Yeah, where he was just some superhuman who uh, did his own PR, but he's really kind of a cock. <laughs> um, but he he made himself look like uh, like he was just not an event like a, a good person, just saving the people of the world. But it was all PR. He was a dick. He wound up lobotomizing his enemy and making him like just a grocery clerk who loved chili. That's all I remember about the book. He lobotomized his enemy. And it was Bill Sienkiewicz art. <laughs> so, so it looked good. So yeah, it's just this vacant, vacant-eyed sketch-looking guy going, who wants chili? I love chili. <laughs> That's all I remember. Sorry, right, maybe it is kind of fair to talk about Marvel that way. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but he's dead on with, with DC, certainly up to a point. It's That's where all the cool shit was happening. In the 80s, I was a DC guy. I've said it a million times. That's where Watchmen was. That's where Dark Knight was. Mm-hmm. That's where Man of Steel was updating Superman. And certainly nobody accused Man of Steel of being adult comics. But it was more realistic-ish mm-hmm. and... You know, introduce the idea of Luther as an industrialist instead of a guy in a purple suit of armor <laughs> who was pissed because Superboy made him lose his hair and it, it tried for more realism. But at the same time, they had Justice League International, which is like, no, comics can still be fun. And yeah. with the added realism of there's no way the world, the USSR would allow a Justice League of America to run around. No, it would have to be an international peacekeeping force. Mm-hmm. And by the way, let's make it a workplace drama where Martian Mar- Manhunter loves Oreos <laughs> and Guy Gardner is a prick. Well, who doesn't love Oreos? Yeah, but it's... Again, we talked about it earlier in the show. It was just so goddamn exciting to become an adolescent and see comic books growing up with us. Right. Because, yeah, there was a point, yeah, when I was about 13 or so, just like I was supposed to age out of it the way they always said, where it's, it came close to, I'm tired of getting beat up for these things, and I'd like to maybe see a naked lady someday <laughs> in the real world. That'd be kind of a good thing. <laughs> and then you find The Dark Knight Returns, and you find Watchmen. So it was, I've never had a more exciting, then again, at 16, you're never going to have a more exciting anything. Everything's brand new and cool, but I've never had a more exciting time in comics. Arguably, the closest I came was, yeah, around 2000, where I came back from just Vertigo and said, all right, well, yeah, thank you, Unbreakable, for reminding me I really like superhero stories. Let's see if there are any good ones. Yeah. As Brian Michael Bendis is moving into Marvel Comics. And, and the Ultimate Line. And, and Grant Morrison is doing X-Men. And you've got the authority over on Wildstorm. And that was probably a close second. That was a good time. Yeah. But. I also enjoyed um, Astro City. Yeah. That was late 90s. Yeah. So, so right around that time. So, yeah, there was. That's probably, yeah, second most exciting. Because it came after some dark fucking times, man. <laughs> yeah. When Alan Moore's reduced to writing for awesome comics in the 90s. <laughs> it was it was a dark time, and we've hopefully moved away from that. <laughs> <laughs> for the moment? Maybe until with, it shifts back again. Maybe with Rebirth, Perhaps. sort of tacking away from certain <laughs> things, maybe. Uh, all right, this is just a, sort of a, a short one. Uh, all I have here is Dark Knight 3 joke. I forget what it is, so... Let's move on up to Dark Knight 3. What I want to do is just get some of the other one. Excuse me? There's a third one? There's a third one. Well, I thought we were going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. That was a, de- 
That was a decent little joke. Guys, maybe you don't want to tell them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And actually, uh, here's uh, another another thing where I have a joke about Azzarello's and Miller's relationship. Again, it's been a long day of cutting audio. I don't remember what some of these things are. We actually got along before Dark Knight 3. Yeah. But then Dark Knight 3. Yeah. Since, since, uh, then, it, then Dark Knight 3 came, we haven't spoken since. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you guys liked the book because we really can't stand it. <laughs> awful. <laughs> and they, I, they could be telling the truth. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm even going to comment on that one. It's, it's one. Having read all of Dark Knight 3, it's had one or two excellent moments. Yes. Now, it's it's been good in the sense that it has backed away from the excesses of Dark Knight 2, not entirely ignoring them, but in a lot of ways ignoring them. Well, like, it's, it's embracing it in a somewhat more political way because the whole idea of a master race, you've got all these Kandorians and what if... What happened if they got out of their bottle and were embiggened? Now you have a whole planet full of, oh, and they've all gone like radical. Oh, no. And they've got superpowers. And this is how we feel about anybody with like more than street level powers. Well, yeah, that's that's absolutely there. <laughs> and I've, I've got a clip on that. <laughs> Should I just jump right to that sure. one? Uh, this is more about the master race title uh, than, than the rest of it. But what was the first sentence? Is there, Are you sure you want to call it the master race? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he didn't like that title. <laughs> you did, that's true. You, you did question that. I, I, I thought did. it had a certain pleasant historical. He lesson. said it's provocative. It's, it's meant to provoke. Like, well, okay, you picked a good one. Look, you got a excuse me. You got a bottle full of people who are as strong as Superman. You open the bottle. What are we? Wait. So, um. The, the term master race had a pleasant historical resonance for the man who enjoyed birth emanation. <laughs> I just want to say that sentence out loud. I did get a sense going, and, and we've got one more of Frank trying to be cute with violence humor, mm. which I, I have been known to do. Um, I, I get the sense he likes to do these things to appear pro- provocative mm. yeah, and maybe go for that Sin City tough guy look. You know, I, I believe he wears that fedora that he always wears, not just to cover up whatever baldness is probably happening, which is pure speculation, because I ain't going to snatch the hat off Frank Miller's head. He's probably quick with that cane. <laughs> I, I get the thing, I get the sense he does certain things for, uh, if not shock value, to provoke a reaction. I certainly don't think Frank was there saying, what, Nazism is a pleasant historical? No, I don't think he was saying that. Get I don't clicks. think you think he said that either. Get clicks, make profit. <laughs> I don't think Frank's as much an internet guy. You've seen what he does on the internet, that <laughs> yeah. he has since erased and hope goes away. Yeah, true. So, but yeah, I do I, think... I, just, I couldn't not say the sentence out loud. And that's that's fine. I do think it more, that entire clip, shows Frank's entire distrust of the idea of superheroes and needs to show humanity triumphing over certain self-selected overlords. And it's probably best that it happens in the context of a DC comic with, in his own words, you know, this goofy stuff from when he was a kid. Because when you take that away, you wind up with something like Holy Terror. Right. So, okay. So, Great. I'm, I'm glad he's working in this particular framework right now. I don't think he was saying anything about the Third Reich, for Christ's sake. Sure. 
That's my opinion. Okay. Or Azarella was jamming him furiously with a ballpoint on the table again. I suppose it's possible, but <laughs> I think Frank was just going for a laugh. Okay. Uh, and if that makes me sound like it's defending him, it's very possible, but that's my that's my take on it. All right. So I skipped ahead on that one. So uh, what did? Oh yes, this is a. This is just sort of a on a much lighter note. Thank God we did it in this uh, in this order. Uh, just on how comics people uh, have fun working together. Mm. And we have a really good time, which is like a lot of people don't believe. That is something that that that, that a lot of people tend not to know about comic book people is that we are a bunch of little kids having ball on the playground. And when you hear us working on stories, you mostly hear laughter. Yeah, it's really fun. We do voices. Yeah. <laughs> Until the shock objects come out, and then just I can't describe the things that happen. <laughs> what are you laughing about? <laughs> All right, so apparently I'm a comics person <laughs> when the sharp objects come out. <laughs> I don't want to picture the two of them with sharp objects. I don't. I don't. Just. Just oh, come. jamming away. Just yeah, just come on. It's it's, it's <laughs> Frank and Brian just trying to stick each other. <laughs> That's all it is. It's just while Frank Miller laugh. reminisces about Dick Giordano. <laughs> oh, all right. So let's move to a, a completely neutral, <laughs> completely neutral. This is just Frank Miller uh, talking about working with Andy Kubert, mm. uh, who is doing the art on Dark Knight Three. Uh, since Frank will not, cannot, is not, does not. To be honest, there's not much I have to teach him. He's, yeah, he kind of had this dad who could draw comics pretty damn well. Um, and, and what I've done mostly is counsel him in things that, things that worked within the particular context of Dark Knight. Andy, all women are, never mind. Just things that have to do with my peculiar experience of doing Dark Knight. I would never try to teach Andy Kubert anything about draftsmanship. And his storytelling is, you know, absolutely strong, but it's 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 really it's job specific. I'm there to I'm there to help when it has to do with with Dark Knight. I got five words for you, Andy: more ink and bigger pectoral muscles. Andy's a lovely young man whose hands have not yet begun to shake. <laughs> I didn't see Frank's handshake. I didn't see him lift his hands a lot. There's that. I I have a few still <laughs> photographs. I didn't try to videotape them, but. But th- that was that was the rumor that was given to us when we got those mm. those texts about Frank at a different uh, convention. Yes, uh, I did not notice anything of that. All right, uh, this is actually uh, an interesting one. Uh, this is uh, Frank talking about uh, Lara and Carrie, mm. so Superman's daughter and Batgirl at this point in Dark Knight Three. Uh, characters that he, he at least says he doesn't want anybody else to write, and I, I just thought it was. Uh, Interesting what he said, given some of the criticism that Frank gets, even in this own show. So, well, they they were derived from you know from these from these legendary characters that we all grew up with, and they but they were very much daughters of those characters, one symbolic, the other in fact. And I felt that they brought a rather distinctly feminist air to um, a very. Master. Yeah, you heard him. I see, I see your eyes going. Comic book universe, but also just, but basically, it was, it, was, it was great to see the girls suit up too. In both cases, they have attributes that their fathers don't have. Particularly in the case of Carrie, 
because I think as my plan was for from very early on was, was that, that she she is the one guy, the one person that 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 he's met in his entire life is smarter than him. All right, I, I saw your eyes going, but the, how, let's, how old are these young women at this point in the uh, book? Carrie is probably at this point in her early mid twenties. Lara, I don't know. I don't know how long it's been since uh, Dark Knight 2, although it feels like it's been a stain on my soul for quite some time. Yeah, you can't. I mean, you, it, on the one hand, you can't really say that it's a feminist thing and then in the next sentence call them girls. That That's somewhat jarring and suggests a lack of understanding about how to be an ally. It's, <laughs> it is possible, but let's also recognize that for all the criticism Miller gets about being a misogynistic writer, at least he knows the word feminism. <laughs> he had some difficulty getting the word out. Um, I also, and I'd need to reread these in order to provide a, a succinct and, and really well buttressed argument. But I, I also, I don't think just putting female characters into a book automatically, even if they are derived from great legends such as Batman and Superman, automatically makes a feminist statement, particularly as what I tend to see from these characters is more daddy worship than I see independent action. You may well have a point there, although uh, Lara, at least in Dark Knight 3, is rebelling strongly against both Superman and Wonder Woman. Uh, yeah, but that's not feminist either. That's just being a brat. Whereas, yes, Carrie has always been, okay, boss, sure, boss, whatever, boss. Daddy uh, worship. Yeah, disobeying only in ways that get the mission done in spite of Batman's orders. Like I, I can see out there um, somebody asking somebody to do a caricature of Carrie Kelly sitting on Batman's lap like Ivanka on Donald's lap from when, back when she was 15 with her hand like on his chin looking at him lovingly and giving everybody like the pedo chills. <laughs> I could go to my local comic store <laughs> right now if it was open and buy a statue of Batman with... Uh, from Dark Knight 2 with Carrie as Catgirl sitting up on his shoulder, <laughs> almost in the pose that you're talking about. <laughs> I see. I knew it was out there. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, so I, while I appreciate w his sentiment, I, I'm not entirely sure that the story's action bear out that it is a feminist take on those two characters. And I am not going to argue the point in any way. Uh, I will say the old saying of if you're young and not a liberal, you have no heart. If you're old and not a conservative, you have no brain, which my dad says to me about every fourth phone call. Uh, that's a thing that exists and may well have uh, taken root in Frank over the years. Perhaps. Uh, all I will also say is I've got a recording of Frank Miller saying the word feminism. And nobody can take that away from me. <laughs> And you know what? You also have that you could follow up with. It's Dan DiDio's fault. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, shit. That, God damn it. That button's obscured. I got too much shit on my screen. I can't do it right now. <laughs> what, what, what can I get to? No, that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, I had too much stuff on my screen. <laughs> wait, here we go. It's Dan DiDio's fault. I knew that would pay benefits. <sighs> I knew Dividends. it. Dividends. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, yeah, look, I, I think... I think he's got a definition of a feminism, which probably includes, I put a girl in the comic. What do you want from me? Yeah, pretty much. But More than one. The commissioner is a woman. <laughs> yeah. Whether his definition matches anybody else's in the world, all I can say is, hey, look, at least he thinks he's thinking about it. 
Okay. That is that is not a defense of anything the man has put to paper in his entire life. But like I said, I got a recording of him saying the word. He said it. He said so, it. <laughs> let's step away from the weightier issues and talk about literally smaller issues. Uh, this is Frank talking about why he wanted to do mini comics in the Dark Knight Three uh, individual issues. A lot of these characters, these wonderful second and third tier DC characters, haven't had their own titles in decades. And, and, um, they're one good treatment away from having, um, from being brought back. And so why not give them a test run? DC Comics, uh, canceled showcase a long time ago. Big mistake. Bring back Ambush Bug. Do it now. Do it now. I mean, to be fair, DC's tried over the years. Yeah. I mean, the, the days of showcase in the anthology comic are long gone, but DC tried, DC tried as recently as the beginning of the new 52 with DC Universe Presents. Back in the late 80s, yep. early 90s, they turned action comics into a weekly that was an anthology. Uh, they've tried it. They just, for whatever reason, don't seem to catch on in the United States the way they have in the past or the way they seem to, you know, with the big phone book mangas in Japan. Right. No, I think, I think their best shot at getting some of those those secondary and tertiary characters into stories was when they would have the short backup stories at the beginning of the New 52 um, in various places, such as um, DC All-Star Western, where it would have like the, the um, Barbary Ghost or um, El Diablo, some of the others. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so certainly they've tried, but you know, there's not a lot you can, you can do if people don't buy it. But right. it, I get what he's saying, except some of these mini comics, uh, Wonder Woman was the subject of one of them, <laughs> and Lara was one, and the Atom was one. Clearly, for whatever reason, Frank Miller has a soft spot for the Atom, because mm. he, he did specifically in a different clip name check it. Uh, all right. I think this, uh, oh no. <laughs> uh, I've got Brian Azzarello talking about his most satisfying moment in comics. <laughs> Are you ready? Sure. All right. <laughs> The greatest thing I've ever done in comics was cutting off Green Lantern's head. Yeah, that was out there. That was out there, yeah. That's the most satisfying moment I've ever had. <laughs> Were you thinking of your father? <laughs> would, you, would you please lie down on the couch? Get it? It's a castration thing. Do you get it? <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> all, I keep th- all I keep thinking is somewhere Jeff Johns is saying, quit it, you guys. I just, I think it's a neat character. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though. It gives you a certain perspective on, on again, where they see and take superhero comics versus why Jeff Johns has been brought in to fix the Snyderverse. <laughs> yeah, no, it, you're not wrong. All right, I got one last clip from Frank here. At least until the post credits. Okay. Um, so this is it, it for the first time. Uh, I mean, the weird thing is it, there were a lot of questions that were asked and most of them sucked and I didn't get anything from most of them because most of them were the, uh, the, Oh, Frank, I used to know your roommate, your roommate from the seventies. So it's like we're friends. So when I say I love you, you know, I mean it and you know, dumb shit like that. So I didn't get most of them, but, uh, somebody, uh, did ask him a little bit about Sin City and where that came from. So this is one last, uh, longer clip. And Sin City is based on, on crime movies of the 1940s and 50s. And they, they were done after World War II when we went from being a very idealistic country to a total emotional and cultural crash where the country felt very sorry for itself. 
and, and, and there was deep despair. And, and, and the, the crime became very popular. I found parallels in, in the 80s when I came up with Sin City and translated that. But mostly, like most comics, I did it because it included everything I wanted to draw. And, and, and it included tough guys, hot cars, and gorgeous women. That's a lot of what I like to draw in life. Um, and, and I like a good crime run. So I, I felt I, with Sin City, I created a vehicle I could keep going with for the rest of my life. So apparently this is how to give Frank Wood 301 involve a tough guy. <laughs> Somebody who can be my surrogate. <laughs> because I, I won't believe that a man can fly, but I will believe that a man can pummel up another dude. He's just got to really want it. Uh, there was one other thing that I, unfortunately the audio got completely mangled, and you'll probably remember this. Uh, there was a kid, a legitimate kid, like probably 12, 13, okay. who went up to the mic and said, I've uh, read some of your Daredevil comics from back in the 80s. Uh, how come it was so grim and gritty? Oh, God. And, I remember that. And the crowd erupted, so it overloaded my recorder. Okay. And Frank went, so one time Frank talked directly into the mic and he said, I was in a mood. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, good joke from Frank. But. It was. So, yeah, I mean, overall impressions of, of the panel, I mean... I, I, I enjoyed it while I was in it, but like I said, you know, upon giving the clips another listen and, and thinking about it, it does certainly give me a better understanding of where these, these creators are coming from as they approach their material and an indication that there's a reason why I haven't necessarily enjoyed some of their work in a very long time. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I thought, again, I walked into it hoping that it wouldn't happen, but expecting maybe the worst could happen. Cause yeah, when I first laid eyes on him, I'm like, Oh my God, it's time has <laughs> Frank himself wrote, you know, the years have not been kind, Selena, <laughs> <laughs> the year, years weren't kind. And yeah, most of his, not most, but a lot of his public statements from right around 2011, 12 were really, uh, Frank doesn't really care who's listening anymore. Yeah. And, uh, then there was the spirit in there somewhere. It was, uh, Frank don't care who's watching anymore either. Well, yeah, there was, he had that bump of, of popularity when Sin City and even 300 did well at the box office. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the spotlight was on him and he was probably not accustomed to how social media has changed everything. Oh, definitely not. And even movie success of that level. I mean, the guy wrote Robocop two and three, yep. but. Those are nobody's favorite as, no. as much of a soft spot for Robocop 2 as I have. I've so, never seen Robocop 3. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've given a couple of the comics that have come out since those movies a day in court. They're okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Robocop. They were an avatar, I think. Uh, yes, I think so. Okay. Uh, yeah. A couple of, uh, Miller's original scripts for like Robocop 2 and Robocop 3 were turned into comic books. Okay. And then they were, uh, re-scripted by Stephen Grant. Okay. All right. They weren't bad, and they were what you would expect from something that was plotted by Frank Miller. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's, a you know, and I'll stand by Robocop versus Terminator as big, stupid sci-fi fun from the early 90s. Uh, yeah, some of his later work doesn't have the resonance and it certainly has a, a weird, questionable attitude. But you know, look, there's a good chance without Frank Miller that, yeah, it 14, 15 years old, I'm done with comics. Yeah. You know, the ability to pick up 
and I still remember my my buddy Ken, who had his driver's license. We had a snow day, and it was one of the we had a local comic store that wasn't open every day. It was open Wednesdays and then like on weekends. So we had a snow day on Wednesday. I'm like, we got to take your fucking '77 Plymouth Volare and go to the comic store because I've I've I want to get this trade paperback that I've heard because it had just come out in trades. I'd missed the original issues. I've since picked up the original first print issues. And I still have that original copy that I got when I was, yeah, 15 years old. And it's like, okay, I'm going to read comics for the rest of my life one way or the <laughs> other. It, you can't take that away from the guy. No, I absolutely not. I just, as, as you grow older and you start thinking about things people say and you have to start really thinking, yeah, art, separating the art from the artist and you can over time, find that you are not as into someone's work as you might have been when you were younger or when the work was different in some fashion. Oh, that, and that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, look, I, <laughs> I don't read great brain books anymore like I did <laughs> when I was a kid. Uh, uh, but, you know, the, the story where uh, the great brain's brother for once figured he was going to like get in on, on how I'm going to get the mumps first this time. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I remember that. God. <laughs> Why wouldn't why didn't I buy more comic books instead of those books? <laughs> it's like the first storyline that came to mind. I, I I did read all the Great Bane books, but that one, that I, one. I I may have said, okay, I'm done with this story of Team America turning into the Marauder. I believe I will read about the Great Brain. <laughs> Something far more fantastic and unbelievable. But yeah, it's I'm glad I got to see him speak. I'm glad that he was, you know, cogent and there were some interesting answers there and some funny ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I probably don't need to meet him. I think I got exactly as much access to Frank Miller uh, as I wanted. Uh, he answered some good questions. He talked about my favorite period in comic books. There you go. I'm I'm glad I did it. And I'm I'm glad I joined you. All right, me too. Because <laughs> you kept me from going over my shoulder and killing that woman. Oh, jeez. Okay, well, ding. Boop, 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 boop. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, I want to talk about a couple uh this week's comics. Let's do that. All right. Which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with Civil War 2. Oh, why not? We'll tack back to Civil War. <laughs> we spent about 10 minutes on it early. Uh, Civil War. Uh, Civil War 2, The Fallen, number one. Yes. Uh, written by Greg Pak. Art by Mark Bagley. Yeah, it's we talked about it a little earlier. Unlike in Civil War 1 that really used... Bill Foster, Black Goliath's death as like just a quick plot device to, yeah. to amplify everything. Marvel is really taking Bruce Banner's death seriously, which by nature you have to. He's a founding Avenger. Right. Uh, he's had two movies and a TV show, <laughs> which means he's way ahead of Iron Man, at least, <laughs> you know, culturally over the years. So you can't just bump him off and pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. But and the good thing is, when it comes to that part of it, of dealing with Hulk's death as this is a person in the Marvel Universe who died, they're letting Greg Pak do it, and he's really been covering every angle. This particular issue follows Bruce Banner's funeral and the immediate aftermath, the reading of his will, uh, and yeah, he's covering all the angles on it, and it's really, I found it a a solid issue and affecting in a couple of different ways. But what did you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I found it affecting. Greg Pak also wrote several really significant storylines a bunch of years back that were Hulk-centric. Um, World War Hulk, Planet Hulk, <laughs> all of the things that, that dealt with 
Banner being unappreciated and seen as a threat by the Illuminati, which caused them to launch him into space because they thought that that would make the planet better. Because there's this this whole thing where, yes, for every good thing Hulk has done to try to save the Earth and and protect its people, he's also been an incredible force of destruction. This is something that the Marvel Universe has always wrestled with. Yeah, absolutely. It's And that comes across very well in this book that for every Rick Jones that lost a longtime friend and somebody who saved his life more than once, there's Joe Blow, who's just psyched that his fucking 86 Mitsubishi isn't going to be torn apart and turned into boxing gloves to take on the abomination again. Right. The best thing that ever happened to him is his insurance rates have probably dropped $200 a month because... The Hulk isn't there to do anything. Yeah, or, or you know, in addition to Joe Blow, the other people on the block who lost somebody as a um, collateral damage because the Hulk threw down the thing again. Or Yeah, Marvel has tried over the years to sort of have it both ways of the Hulk is an incredible force of destruction, but nobody somehow ever gets killed when he's around. And, and this issue, as has happened over the years, but this issue sort of at least acknowledges the idea that by nature the strongest one there is in a rage-filled battle in an urban center people are going to get killed yeah so and so i th- i thought that was kind of a sobering thing to look at but I, the delicacy with which pack handled the survivors and how they are going to go forward and move move on if they can right <laughs> is is set up nicely we've got um betty ross who is apparently no longer red red she hulk <laughs> yeah i missed something somewhere she's been depowered and yeah, so is thunderbolt so is, ross right um she is divorced from banner but she she wants to move forward uh she sees now you know how she still loves him and and has to mourn for him yeah wants to reach out to her father because the Warbound, who who were significant in Pax runs with Planet Hulk, uh, World War Hulk, who were yep. the family that the Hulk created for himself after the Illuminati jettisoned him into space. I mean, the best thing in a way that ever happened for Bruce Banner, actually, or for the Hulk specifically, was that he landed on, on uh, the planet that was the setting for Planet Hulk yep. because he was able to see where... The things that were a detriment for him at home, having to be the strongest there is <laughs> at all times, were only things that were going to be helpful to him on Planet Hulk. Yeah, because he had to he had to constantly fight to stay alive, and and being the strongest there is was the only way to do that. And in doing that, since he was surrounded by other cultures who appreciated that as a quality. He was able to put together a, a Scooby gang. <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was able to find a wife who could keep up with him. He was able to. <laughs> he had a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he did. <laughs> um, and, and so it was in a way that much more tragic when he came back to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Hulk almost done. <laughs> Don't stop for Hulk. Jesus. Yeah, emotionally 12. Yeah, I can't help it. But but no, you're right. And uh, and he brought that family back for World War Hulk, which is the event I've looked most forward to and just wish it had been more just raw animal destruction. <laughs> well, really- that's the line that pa- Pac has to then like walk when he brings 
the Hulk back is now you're back on this planet. How far are you going to go? Right. Yeah, you can't destroy New York, but the the Hulk can destroy. New I mean, York. yeah, he could have if he had wanted to enslave the whole planet and just left it at that. Yes, based on the events of Planet Hulk. But, <laughs> <laughs> yes. but Hulk Avenger, Hulk hero. <laughs> well, let's be fair. That was before the Avengers movie. You, you could have really done just about anything with Hulk, right? But at, at this time, they're still trying to preserve a certain status quo, and it wasn't let's just kill somebody off every other month for shock value. No, you're right. And they had reasons for doing what they did, regardless of what I was really hoping that I would see in that. Yeah. But yeah, to to get back to this particular issue, again, Pac Pac has that kind of history with the Hulk, which makes him perfect to write this. Because yeah, the the best scene in it, at least for me, was the reading of the will. But you go ahead. Well, and and this is where I was getting to is, you know, if Hulk was always the strongest there was, uh, he also, by the end of the reading of this will, seems to be the smartest there was he he has something for everybody he solves um a, a quantum physics space time problem for tony stark yep posthumously <laughs> he, he comes up with with a, a data set of observations because apparently the hulk might have been able to see paranormal phenomena He's not sure that he believes that Hulk could do that, but he at least took the data so that he could give it to Stephen Strange to analyze in the occult in his own way. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and five get you ten. That's a tip off for how they bring back Bruce Banner somehow. That's pretty much yeah. It was that's the gun there, on the wall. There's no other reason for Doctor Strange to be there. Doctor Strange and the Hulk were not uh, buddies. Drinking buddies. Yeah. No. Arguably, Banner should not drink. <laughs> uh, God no. No. <laughs> um, he gives an egg timer to everybody in the room because he understands that with his passing and he did this will this without knowing the circumstances of how he would die uh, understanding that this could be a catalyzing event for the members of his immediate and extended families and urging them to do what he had only begun to learn to do by the end which is Live your life a moment at a time, and if you're going to do something rash, set this timer and stop. <laughs> yeah, just give it three minutes. Give it three minutes. I tried to give myself 24 hours, and I I would be too ramped up and wouldn't last 10 seconds. But three minutes I could do. And in a contemplative three minutes, not three minutes where you're distracting yourself doing something else. Right. And the only person by the end of this issue, spoilers, who does not learn this lesson is Amadeus Cho. Yeah. All but telegraphing, he's going to be the Hulk who tears people apart in Ulysses' vision, if you can trust Ulysses' vision at all. Right. Which we're beginning to not trust. At this point, I've read enough issues where there's enough arguable evidence that had various agents not acted, then Ulysses' vision would not have come to pass. Right. And so how much of this is you can't change the future and how much of this is you're creating the future because you're listening to this dumbass kid. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's I don't see any way that Ulysses comes out of this being right all the time. I don't see any way that Captain Marvel's side of this comes out in the right. And like I said, I don't know how Captain Marvel gets out of this. If you've been leading literally Gestapo tactics of private cops pulling people off the street with no warrant and no probable cause and locking them up for however. And I don't know how you get out of that. There's a vigilante group at this point in force called Preemptive Strike who show up in the Iron Fist 
Power Man book. I have not read that one yet either. And they they just have a list. They've created a tablet-like device that ha- that runs only one piece of software, which is a facial recognition software with a database to a criminal activities. I did read that, but I was drunk, so I don't remember <laughs> all of it. So speaking of which, can I have that other beer? Please? Sure. Thank you. Here you Thank go, babe. You. Um, and you know why are we allowing these? people to run around and pull people who have not committed any crimes because the people in the database are people who are not criminals like at, at this point they are legally not criminals yeah. <laughs> they may have done things in their past but now they are are living a straight life so <laughs> yeah it's this this mini this event is reaching a point which i kind of hope it would uh, the profiling thing isn't something that had originally occurred to me, but I like where that's going. But the, the concept of free will is starting to be bandied about. Yeah. So if, if Bendis can really hook on to those and make that the central crux of this, not necessarily just, oh, his profiling is wrong and struck through him, but really call into question of <laughs> does anybody have any free will and that's the key question, then I'll be really satisfied with this. Yeah, so this book in particular is affecting, and I I hope that if they do come up with some sort of weird MacGuffin that brings Banner back, they treat the character <laughs> in the respectful manner that they're demonstrating they can here, rather than just, he's always strong and stupid, or he's smart but self-involved and not... <laughs> yeah, well, there's no question they'll bring him back, because... Uh... Thor Ragnarok is coming out in a year. True. So I mean, there is always that cynical piece, but they're doing such sensitive work here with the Hulk and the Hulk family that I would, I would like to see that continue regardless of, of which characters move on after the end of this event. Yeah, absolutely. And what they're doing with Amadeus Cho, who has always been, you know, oh, he's a kid, but he's always two or three steps ahead and he's smart. Yeah. Ultimately, he'll become a teenager and... I think he already is a teenager. That's the problem. Yeah, well, when you're a teenager and your hormones are going, you don't necessarily make good decisions. Chuck Gamma on there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I like what they're doing with Amadeus Cho here. Yeah. Uh, And uh, let me just say that moment where (laughs) the Bruce Banner uh, wake recording says, uh, Rick Jones, I got you Jimi Hendrix's guitar. (laughs) And Rick says, what? And he's like, yep, Jimi Hendrix's guitar. Like he knew exactly what he'd say. That was a nice enough moment of clearly Bruce Banner knows Rick Jones well enough to know this is the only thing that really matters and I can get this for you. And it was a nice enough moment that I was willing to overlook the fact that Mark Bagley drew Rick playing that guitar right-handed, which would not have happened because Jimi Hendrix was not. But it was still a good moment overall. I like it. I'd have to look at the... The rendition of this guitar versus the actual guitar. Rick is playing it as one does, unless one is Paul McCartney or apparently Jimi Hendrix. So, or Kurt Cobain. Let's because I'm looking at it. And I'm like, no, that's that's where I would put my hands. But no, they all those guys uh, reversed it. I'd have to be strum with the left and fret with the right. Hmm, I'll Because you're left handed. Uh, okay. <laughs> I was in the rock and roll business for a while. Trust me. All right. No, the, just say that I fret with the left and I strum with the right. But enough about me. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Beavis. Stop. <laughs> and yes, I'm talking about guitar playing. Yeah, okay, thank you. All right. So So yes, th- this is a winner. This is one of the best ones this week. Yeah, well also there's this moment too 
um, where Betty at the end of this is in the room, in the hospital room with Jennifer Walters, who's been out of play off the board. We're not sure if she's going to pull through this coma and <laughs> oh, she'll pull through it. Yeah. Well, no, and this is the first moment where she, we see sign of life because she starts crying. Yeah. And it's like, Oh God. <laughs> yeah. At this point, I don't know if they're cynically pulling her off the board the way they did pulling Hulk off the board by shooting him into space. Cause conveniently planet Hulk took place at the same time as civil war. True. Very good point. Somebody knew that, yeah, if you got a Hulk, uh, you win. Yeah, well, so. that's sort of the premise of the first Avengers movie. <laughs> yeah. We have a Hulk. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows that. So. Yeah, interesting. But yeah, definitely a solid book this week. I'm enjoying individual moments of Civil War II, but again, because we're asking heroes to fight each other and in many cases act counter to how they've been portrayed earlier, like this whole thing with Carol Danvers, I wasn't the hugest fan of, of the reboot that brought her back into prominence. I mean, I, I know that there's a really huge vocal group of the Carol core people that are, that are fans of, of Kelly Sue DeConnick's um, relaunch with the title and all of that. Oh yeah. But it just feels like it, in the, the wake of such um, popularity with that, that character and, and what she could demonstrate as, as far as, not just being a female, strong female character, ooh, right. but, but you know what what you can do with that sort of relaunch. Um, they're going out of their way to twist and contort um, this character in order to. It feels like knock her back down a couple of pegs. Yeah, it seems like a weird direction to take a character that's getting a lot of mainstream press because they've cast Brie Larson yeah. for the, what is it, 2018, 19 movie? Yeah, because they can hold on to her for like 20 years after that and she'll, you know, with enough Botox, not age. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, they're just, Knockwood have so cleanly telegraphed. And I could be wrong, there could be a big surprise ending because this event is doing exactly what Every other Marvel event and most DC events have done. Let's start strong. Here's two issues up front. We'll get you hooked. Now we're late. Shit. We're going to chuck an extra issue on the end and we're going to charge you the same amount for every one of them. And this thing won't end until all the individual titles of the individual characters involved are three months out of it. Well, here's what I wonder, because we haven't seen it yet, but it seems sort of like the obvious story to tell at some point fine you're getting all of these visions from ulysses doom gloom stuff's gonna you know, blow up people are gonna die here's who needs to be saved what happens when ulysses vision is about you carol yeah and i had not even considered that but uh, i bet you that's coming i hope it is that'll be fun yeah because then then you got to ask yourself some questions about your motivations all right that's what i want to see happen <laughs> well particularly again i read um all new Wolverine, the Civil War issue, and yeah, you've got X twenty three trying to protect her little clone Gabby, and yep. and and it's supposed to be from Old Man Logan, and they're they're beginning to bond as a family unit <laughs> because now you've got this mentor that you can talk to about things that you have in common, like why am I smelling these pheromones? How do you keep the claws from popping at night? <laughs> yeah, and to see that the reason that. The small army, as X-23 termed it, that came to her apartment to collect Logan was because they were worried Ulysses had had a, a vision that Logan was going to kill Gabby. Oh no, the death of a child. And because this whole rigmarole happened, which caused Logan and Gabby to escape the apartment, that sent him into a berserker rage. And yeah, then he killed Gabby. Gee, maybe you could have sent a text. <laughs> The, the idea of self-fulfilling prophecy is popping up more and more exactly. as Civil War II goes on. Exactly. 
So, and that I want, I want to see Tony Stark back sort of in the game with this new data set now to talk about what's going on here and what's set as immutable and what's not. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, did you ever grab that last issue from two or three weeks ago at this point of Invincible Iron Man? No, I still got to catch up on that. Oh, there's there's the great moment where Tony is sitting there in the ruins of his own building that have been oh, brought down. Oh, you told me about this. Yeah, I, by, I do need to read this. <laughs> by the Inhumans. And, uh, and Tony says, you know, as an aside, when I built weapons, I was considered the standard to which uh, weapons should be built. And do you have any reason how quickly I could take down the Inhumans and that floating monstrosity they call a capital city if I put my mind to it? Which is, oh, yeah, he, he could... He, he built the weapons that <laughs> that would that ran the Cold War. Yeah, you got to figure that to a certain degree. I mean, people make Batman versus Iron Man comparisons all the time because uh, they're both wealthy billionaires and they build their own tech. Batman's particular thing is he's a paranoid, so somewhere locked away he has the definitive weapon that will take out each member of the Justice League should it come to that. Right. You would have to figure that Tony Stark would have done the same thing for every prominent high-powered mutant or Avenger or whomever. I don't believe that because Tony Stark is not presented as the obsessed paranoid that Bruce Wayne is. True, but he's going to be off the board apparently after the events of Civil War because then you're going to have this Riri character and I don't know what her last name is. Otherwise it sounds like an awful slur. Um, and, and, <laughs> I think it's Williams, but okay. I wouldn't bet my life on that. Um, and uh, Dr. Doom of all people um, assuming the armor. Yeah. Cause Dr. Doom actually shows up at the end of that invincible Iron Man also. So Tony's going to have some time to think. True. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Possibly in a jail cell. Tony's going to have some time to think. And he'll be back in time for, Avengers Infinity War number one, no matter what. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just saying, yeah, he, he may not have ever created defense mechanisms, but who's to say that Look, down when, the line based on this? When it comes down to Batman versus Iron Man, Batman we established in this week's, oh God, I forget if it's Superman or Action Comics. Batman has built a bat cave on the moon. That was uh, Superman. Ah, okay, Superman. That was Superman. Uh, so yeah, he's prepared for all kind of things. Yeah, but... he's got an exoskeleton up there that Lois gets a hold of. That's mwah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> However, uh, Tony Stark uh, doesn't need to make any particular preparations to drop a bunker buster bomb on top of Wayne Manor into the bat cave taking out all comers it's true it's true an interesting thing and i don't think we have the time to get into it now batman in dark knight returns armor versus iron man in hulkbuster armor who wins oh iron man smoke him <laughs> there, there's no you doubt think a, so? there's no doubt about it batman's armor is only powered up enough to stop a vastly weakened superman uh who is basically divorced from the direct rays of the sun it's running off of a vastly reduced power grid after an electromagnetic pulse, but running off the power of Gotham City, what was able to be restored. Whereas the Hulkbuster armor is meant to stop the Hulk. Who is the strongest there is. Under any circumstances, with its own power supply. And Batman still barely survived, only with the intervention of Green Arrow with a kryptonite, with an artificial kryptonite arrow. God, you're a geek. I know. I love you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> 
We are over two hours in. Do we want to talk demonic uh, in any kind of detail? Yeah, just because I, I, I think it needs to be discussed. Chris Sabella is knocking it out of the park on a variety of titles lately, and this is his latest. Yes, uh, Demonic Number 1, written by Christopher Sabella, art by Nico Walter. Uh, this is the latest book out of Robert Kirkman's Skybound yes. studio. Uh, and in the short definition, this is superhero comic by way of demonic possession. Mm. Uh, it, it, the protagonist, I, I just took a very few notes just before the show on this one because we were running out of time. <laughs> I've been sitting in this chair for eight and a half hours at this point. Eventually we run out of time and have to do the show. Yeah. Uh, I forget the main character's name, but by the end of it, he is in a costume with Freddy Krueger slash Wolverine-ish type claws, clearly in a 90s inspired dark superhero. I'm here to kill the guilty costume being driven by demonic forces. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's much more complex than that makes it sound. Sabella is really good in that he treats the reader like adults. There is uh, the cult, uh, whose name I don't remember, Nolo. Novo. Novo. Whether it's a cult or a religion, it's just sort of brought up and little details in natural conversation give you a little bit of information about what it is. We know that it's important. We know that bad things happen to the protagonist because of it and that he's in their thrall because of it. He, he treats us like grownups. He's like, I'll tell you what's going on. We're going to get there. This is the absolute, not the absolute minimum, but this is what you have to know just to get through this to get to this point. Right. It's and, uh, the, the main character, the protagonist is Dr. Uh, not Dr. <laughs> Defect, <laughs> Detective uh, Scott Graves. Graves. <laughs> yeah. I think what's effective about this story, and I base this in part having read uh, Sabella's note at the end of, this, of the book, but even just having read through this, I mean, yes, they're making a point of at some point the protagonist and possibly his wife were uh, victimized by this cult that tapped into something evil and awful while their parents weren't paying attention and yep. the end because they were raised by this cult and you know is what happens to you in childhood a sufficient excuse for evil acts you may carry out when you become older right it also I mean, a good horror story at its, at its core um is about something that is a real human concern and that's what you're exploring through the mechanism of of the horror genre and in this it's you know, deep down, are my demons that awful? And what happens if the things that I suspect are awful about me get out? Right. And <laughs> it, it it does it within the tropes, at least at the end, of a superhero comic. Right. So. Yeah, and and you know, can you can you explain away what you did as an act of uh, vigilantism, um, or are you just deep down an awful, evil human being? You know, what excuses are you making for yourself? Doesn't this costume look a little bit like Azrael's in Batman? I was going to say it looks kind of like Moonlight, Moon Knight, but yeah. Yeah, I could go with that too. So. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting superhero origin in that it in no way reads like a superhero origin. No. And it gives. <laughs> A bunch of tidbits of information. Do you like that, your grim, dark, gritty? <laughs> yeah, this is really grim and really dark, yeah. but it's also, it, it gives enough information to make you interested to find out the answers, but doesn't spoon feed you. This is not a one and done no. by any stretch of the imagination, but it tells you enough about this character and his partner and his family mm-hmm. to 
engage with them and want to see what happens with them. Absolutely. So yeah, this was, uh, I, I picked this one up just based on, oh yeah, I like Christopher Sabella. I knew nothing about it beyond the, the title and that he'd been tweeting that he had a new book coming out and was really pleasantly surprised. Yeah. So if you're, if you're looking for something a little different, uh, a break from the big two, uh, another excellent story by an excellent writer with some great art. And and the color palette in here too. It's it's not quite four colors, but it's it's a it's a dark take on on four colors. Yeah, because <laughs> there's there's a really limited palette within each of these panels, and then on top of that, tonally they keep it muted. Yeah, no, it's it's a solid looking book too. So yeah, this this was a good one. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed this one. All right, anything else? I think that covers everything. Okay, so we'll do the usual stuff. <laughs> Um, don't know where you found this episode, but you can always find us at our home website, crisisoninfinitemidlives.com. We are on Facebook. I've been doing more with that, so God knows. Keep an eye on it. Give us a like. You can always send us a message through there. We will definitely get it. It is facebook.com slash crisisoninfinitemidlives. We are on Twitter. Twitter handle is at infinitemidlife. We are on Tumblr. Yep. Technically. <laughs> We are. <laughs> Crisisoninfinitemidlives.tumblr.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. And if that's how you get your podcast, do us a favor, subscribe through there. Mm. Uh, if, uh, if at the very least you can give us a review or give us a rating, it will help new people find the show, which makes us feel like big people. <laughs> you can validate find- our life. <laughs> We are on uh, Stitcher, yep. we're on TuneIn Radio, we're on uh, Google Play, we're proud members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can always find us, uh, no, actually, you, well, you can always find us, but we are proud members of the Comics Podcast Network. Did I say that already? You did. I'm fucking punchy. It's okay, huh? You can email us, crisisoninfinitemidlives at gmail.com. Did I miss anything? Did you mention our website? Probably, but crisisoninfinitemidlives.com. <laughs> You're, you're making me doubt me, and that's not a hard thing to do right now. I think that's it. I think that's it. Uh, Tumblr? We're, yeah. Yeah, we did Tumblr. We're barely on Tumblr. Oh, God. Twitter. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Stop it. Just stop it. We're, it's all under control. Okay. We're not on Pinterest, nor are we no. on Instagram. Uh, no, Jesus. <laughs> I, the, the, those guys hate us, I think. We're on Facebook. All I know is I, lo- I watched the last few episodes of uh, The Nightly Show this week. <laughs> And uh, based on what they do, clearly we're professional broadcasters. Oh. <laughs> oh. Larry, All right. Larry that's it. Larry only drank last week. That's it. Okay. I drink every week. I'm a hero. All right. We're done. All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Uh, this has been episode 125 of the Crisis on Infinite Midlife Show. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. Thank you for listening. And derp. How would you feel if they made like a straight up... Dark Knight Returns adaptation with Ben Affleck in a few years. I mean, I get it that Batman vs Superman took some inspiration from it, but like, if they made a straight up Batman vs Superman, um, the Dark Knight Returns, like straight up adaptation, live action, um. with Ben Affleck. <laughs> it's gotta be Ben Affleck, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to see it in a part of this universe. The Ben Affleck universe? Yeah. <laughs> so he's got a universe? Well, I mean, like... I think they're a town. But with Ben Affleck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you guys like Ben Affleck as well? No. no.
No. I kind of did. I thought he was fine. I thought he was awesome. Awesome? I won't give him awesome. Gail Godot was awesome. No, I thought he was fine. I thought why we missed all the movie. That trailer, I hope the movie's as good as that trailer. Also, one more. What was the question again? I was just wondering how you would feel like Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck starring in Dark Knight Returns? Yeah, just. He's young. Like, in a few years. I just gotta, I gotta show you. He's already 43. He's started at 55 in Dark Knight. I'm just like in a few years. And it's the third one. He's got what, 120? All right, all right. Thank you. <laughs>